This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Why, hello there. To receive each episode of Sacred Symbols three days earlier than the public, totally ad-free. To have your questions, comments, and concerns read on the air. To hear your name in the end credits, and to score other cool perks. Please consider supporting this show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. Not only will your subscription net you benefits for Sacred Symbols and allow this show to continue into the future, but those benefits also carry over to other CLS shows too, including the video game-centric YouTube show SideQuest, the retro and nostalgia-themed podcast Knockback, and the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats. In other words, you're getting insane bang for your buck. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, Sacred Symbols and CLS couldn't and wouldn't exist. Now, on to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined today, as always, by my lovely co-host, Chris Raygun. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing, doing good. Yeah? Yeah. You, 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 before you started, you looked at me. You, it looked like you like shut down for a second. I did. I, I had an emotional breakdown, but just like just very really quickly. Second? Yeah. And then I regained control of myself. No, I was stumbling. <laughs> I do so many of these shows that I was stumbling through. I'm like, what show is this? <laughs> you know, what am I doing? Oh, yeah, you introduced this as, like, side quest once or something. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and I can't keep it all straight, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. So, Chris, are you well? How's everything going? I'm doing good. Yeah, I, I think uh, last week I was like, I felt way off, because mm. I think probably just the travel and just being tired. It happens. I feel, uh, I feel rested. It happens. I'm sympathetic to that, because I hate when people critique when people on podcasts or videos say that they're tired. You know, like they don't care that we're tired. We don't care that we're real people with real <laughs> lives and emotions. Things happen to us. Uh, I'm not here just for your enjoyment and your amusement, audience. And neither is Chris. Actually, I am here specifically for your enjoyment and amusement. Yeah, Strike li- that. Literally our job. Strike that from the record, please. Well, I hope you guys are doing well out there as well. This is Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. If you're new to the show, we go on for 90 minutes, sometimes two hours or so. Talk about the PlayStation news of the last week. We talk about the games we're playing. We take your questions, comments, and concerns. Of course, as always, you can get the show three days early and ad-free on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. if you want it hot off the presses. It's not really a press. We're not yeah. making a newspaper or a book, but you understand what I'm saying. It's a good phrase. It is a good phrase. And speaking of phrases, I originally had it in the notes, but I do want to scold you because <laughs> you're using portmanteaus on your Twitter to a really... I don't want to say you're doing it too often, but I want to see a portmanteau every so often. I like portmanteaus. For people We're doing a podcast, by the way, which is a portmanteau. Oh, that's a great point. So Fuck me. Yeah. Yeah. Who am I to say? <laughs> it wasn't the most recent one, but you used one where you were calling Eminem an Eminem a feminist or something like that. An Eminem a, an M a feminist? Fem- a feminist? Oh, feminist. That's what it was. Whew. 
Yeah, I thought it was, I thought that was really clever, and then I remember that it was a Bo Burnham lyric. And oh. I was like, fuck. Uh, ah. Bo Burnham's making a lot of money these days. Good yeah, right? Him. Proud of him. Hey, he's a good dude. Never met him, but proud of him nonetheless. By the way, Chris Pratt follows me on Twitter. What? Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Oh. He only follows like 300 people. That's weird. Yeah. That's a weird grab. It is weird, because every once in a while, someone will tweet at me and be like, why does Chris Pratt follow you? And I'm like, I don't. I just ignore it, but today I didn't ignore it. And I'm like, I think I think he's a Colin Moriarty appreciator, is what I wrote. And you it just got it got liked like hundreds of times. I'm you, know like, I don't. you know what's weird? I have uh, you, you know who Hugh Laurie is? Yeah, the guy from House. He follows me for some reason. Really? Yeah. And that was like the most confusing. I, d- I didn't want to acknowledge it or like interact with him at all because he might r- realize that like he's made a mistake. <laughs> right. That's my assumption with Chris yeah. Pratt is that this wasn't intentional or that he doesn't run his own Twitter account. Well, th- I don't know. There's no way Hugh Laurie watches anything, <laughs> anything I do. That's a- that'd be insane. It's possible, right? Like. Allison Brie is one of my favorite actresses. I'm like in love with. Oh, Allison mine too. Brie. Yeah, I got. I just love her. Yeah. Oh, she's great. Yeah, from Community, obviously, in Mad Men. I'm sorry. Have you seen Glow? Oh yeah, yeah. I love uh, both great. seasons. Yeah, she's awesome. She's a great, talented actress. And random, I randomly tweeted at her or something, or we did a video about her when I was like kind of funny, and then she tweeted back and had watched the video and tweeted at me and like cited something that was in the video, and I'm like, you literally just watched this 20 minute video of, that I made. That's so weird. You that know? is odd, yeah. And what it's told- I guess celebrities are just like people who just like right. dick around on the internet too. That's what I'm saying. Like there are definitely famous people that love you. Yeah. We are entertaining too. The takeaway is that celebrities love us specifically and not other people. Yeah, just us. Yeah. Now, Chris, for people that didn't listen last week or aren't Patreon supporters, I do want to reiterate that we did a really awesome and well-received Patreon exclusive over at Collins Last Dance Patreon it's an episode of Sacred Symbols all about getting to know you. We solicited questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience. And we went on for about an hour, a little longer, and really got to know you as a gamer and what your tastes are and all, and your history with games. And so if people are interested in seeing that, go subscribe to Patreon. That's not going to be released to the public. It was a lot and of pe- fun. Yeah, people are really enjoying it. So well done on that. Now, on that note, mm-hmm. Joseph LaRussa wrote into us, said, hello, gentlemen. I really enjoyed listening to Chris talk about himself on the Patreon exclusive episode. I had never heard of him before the show. But what about Colin? Can we get a Colin-centric episode for those of us who are new? I only started listening to you after you hosted Brandon Jones of Easy Allies on Fireside Chats, so I'd love to know more about you. Outside of your 50th Fireside Chat with Aaron, which was awesome. Thank you. Well, Joseph, that's very nice of you to ask. I do a monthly Q&A with my audience, so I feel like that would be redundant and unfair to them for me to do that, to be perfectly honest. But we'll get more questions in here that get you into the flow and get you familiar with the life and times of Colin Moriarty. In the meantime, go enjoy Chris's episode and thank you for your interest. And by the way, you can write into the show just like Joseph by supporting the show on Patreon. We draw questions, comments, and concerns from that audience exclusively. And I apologize again that I can't get to all of you. You're submitting tons of questions. There's a lot. So I appreciate that nonetheless. Daniel the Awesome wrote into us and said, if you were in the middle of a human centipede, Jesus Christ, who would you want in front of you and who would you want behind you? You can choose anyone dead or alive, real or fictional. What? Yeah, I like how you're like I, I. I very, I'm very careful with what questions I. I can't get to all of them. I pick only the best, and then immediately follow up with this horrific hypothetical. I thought this non sequitur was pretty funny. The flat non sequitur. You didn't enjoy that? I no. enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Who would you want? In so for people that don't know, Human Centipede is like a horror movie. I think from like ten years ago, a little less than that, where a, 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 a maniacal doctor stitches people's mouths to other people's assholes and then other people's mouths to their asshole and create a certain sort of human centipede, as the title suggests. It's very dark. It's messed up. I've never actually seen it. No? No. Have you? Yeah, I've seen it. And do they show the centipede? I think so. How do the actors ever get over that? Uh, 
Ah, a lot of will. Yeah, I presume. I don't know. That was a that was a strange. I tried to block it out. It's not really that disturbing because ultimately it's like I don't know. It's not like a live leak video. Right. Like once you've seen live leak videos, you're kind of like ah well whatever. It's a movie. But are you gonna I tap hate, out? I hate this question. <laughs> I figured you. I figured you wouldn't like it. I don't really have a good answer for you. I have to kind of marinate on it more, but I did want to acknowledge that you asked it because it was different than the. You know, we usually get fuck Mary kills and all. Yeah, and yeah. By the way, it doesn't only have to be fuck Mary kill. It can be any number of disturbing question that you can ask. Like I thought the Grimace versus Michelin Man question was quite disturbing. Yeah, actually. no, that actually was. And we have another one from Courtney Williams who oh, says, "Hi, goodness. Colin and Chris." In the hopes of making it a semi-regular feature, I have another fantasy fight scenario. Who would win in a fight to the death? Ronald McDonald or the Burger King. Now, this is a fundamentally sound question, mm-hmm. and I'm curious how you feel about this because I'm quite disturbed by both of these characters, <laughs> even more so than Grimace or the Michelin Man. Yeah, no, I agree. They're definitely worse. Now, I'm picturing the King as like the mid 2000s Sneak King yeah. <laughs> version from, you know. I love it when people say the name of that game. <laughs> Why? Because it's a. Because there's such an obvious discount. It's Sneak King. Yeah. There's always that uh, inflection. I love it. I remember when I was in college, my friend got those games, like those Burger King games, which were like original Xbox games, but had the Xbox 360 almost look on their packaging, I remember. And they were fine. It was a nice idea, I guess. They're little indie games, I guess. Yeah. Who would Uh, win, Ronald McDonald or the Burger King? So what the question really is, is would a clown, it's a clown versus a king, which I think the answer is pretty obvious that a king would probably do pretty well against a clown. I Clowns aren't really scary. Yeah. Ronald is, but that's mm. just because the context of his existence. Mm. Mm. I feel like this is an allegory for Final Fantasy VI because that's also about a king and a clown, you see. <laughs> and in that one, the clown actually it wins. It is. But nonetheless, I would love the Burger King to just... I don't want him to just beat up Ronald McDonald. I want him to bring Ronald McDonald to within just an inch of his life. Like where Ronald McDonald's like in a hospital somewhere for maybe years at a time. Because that man has gotten away <laughs> with disturbing me for long enough. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. You sit down on the bench next to his little statue. He's looking like a fucking creeper. He's a statue? Yeah. You ever go to the, like a McDonald's and there's like a bench and there's oh, like a Ronald McDonald right, with his arm yeah. out and you can sit with him and take a picture? That's right. You don't need that. <sighs> who yeah. is this? Who does this man think he is? Who came up with this man? <laughs> why, is your, why is your mascot a clown? People love clowns. God, they're so awful. Yeah, they're, they're so bad. awful. I cannot possibly believe that there was a time when people adored clowns you should, you should see colin right? he's like seething this is a this is a particularly seething hatred of clowns that i'm just discovering i just don't understand how we can let this run amok in our society for this long it's avant-garde well it certainly is i won't say that <laughs> is wrong because it isn't let's get into the actual substance of the show though yeah i want to start with what we're playing and before we do I want to read a, a, a question from Steve Appleton, who wrote into us and said, Last week, you guys seem to have a, a massive difference of opinion regarding Another World when it was briefly brought up during the September PS Plus lineup discussion. Colin, you assured Chris that the topic would be revisited, and unless I missed something, that it, this wasn't mentioned again. By the way, the printer's going. The, the, the printer's going, Chris. I, to, I told Chris that at some point during our show, the printer would actually turn on. <laughs> I have this printer that just prints things out that I attempted to print months ago. It randomly just prints them out now. So if you hear the noise in the background, that's unfortunate. Anyway, Steve is asking us to follow up on our Another World talk because I had said that I hated that game. Yeah. And you like that game. Yeah, I like it. I think it's great. But I don't you, hate you it You don't think all. it's great. I don't think it's amazing, but it's a nice little charming, like atmospheric little point and click kind of side scrolly thing. Why does it have to control like it controls? 
Why does it feel like that? I don't know. I feel like the style and the atmosphere of it does do a lot of the heavy lifting. But it pulled me through it, and I didn't really have really all that negative to say about it. It is also a very old It is very old. Game. Yeah. I When I reviewed it at IGN, I got a lot of shit for giving it a four, which is bad. Right. Because people were so livid about it. But I'm like, I just... It's the same way when I reviewed Dragon's Lair, when it was released on PS3, which is, a, for people that don't know, a classic arcade game, like an animated Don Bluth arcade oh, game, yeah. where you're ma- basically making decisions with just an, like some buttons and sticks and it's a totally ridiculous game sucks <laughs> you know and like it's beautiful you have to you have to look at games like that in the context of like when they came out you know i think yeah i mean that's fair uh, it's definitely like i wouldn't play dragon's lair right now and i probably wouldn't care about another world if i hadn't played it like a long time ago but uh yeah i don't know i thought it was fine i, I wouldn't give it like a 4 i'd say like maybe like a maybe a 6 Maybe almost a seven, but not really. Another world I always get confused with different world, which is, I think, the Cosby show spinoff about one of them going to college. And then there was also a show called Another World about an alien that this woman communicated with through this pyramid communication device that was on in the 80s. You look lost right now, but I'm telling you these things were real. My eyes just glazed over. These things happen. It's fine. Chris... (laughs) You and I had both played Spider-Man. We're going to do an episode about it, so I'm going to leave that conversation to the side. We're going to put a Spider-Man episode up in the following days after this episode goes live. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend about an hour with it, so I'm going to skip over all of that. But what we have been playing, both of us, is Shadow of the Tomb Raider. So I'm curious what you have thought about your experience, your most recent experience with Lara Croft. When they started the new kind of Tomb Raider, I was kind of... I felt weird about it because I was actually quite a a big fan of like the original ones on on PlayStation, which have not aged well, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, no. I can't play those games anymore, but I have fond memories of them, and I liked the kind of characterization of Laura Croft as like this kind of like generic '90s badass. I know that sounds like a negative thing, but I did like it. Uh, so when they did this like reboot where they were trying to make her like a real character, I was kind of like, okay, I, I get it. Things are getting cinematic. I don't know if I necessarily want this. And the first game was fine. I thought it wasn't anything horrendous about it. It wasn't great to me. I didn't play the second one. I'll admit that. What was it? What was the second one called? It was the one that in this Rise most of the Tomb recent, Raider. Yeah, Rise of the Tomb Raider. Rise it. of the Tomb Raider. Shadow of the Tomb Raider is the order. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't play Rise. I played this one and I liked it. I had a I had a pretty good time with it. I still kind of feel weird about the characterization of Lara Croft because I feel like they're trying to make her like a very real character, and I, and in some senses I get it. It's like, oh hey, I could see this person reacting this way, but at the same time, I'm playing a video game, and I kind of don't really care to just play as a person, you know. There's a point in Shadow of the Tomb Raider. I get these names mixed up. Yeah, I, I understand. Where it feels like they kind of go the route of, oh, she's like a badass now. And then they just walk it back. And I got like really sad because <laughs> it was like almost a great moment. But I mean, the gameplay is really solid. The combat's way better than I think the first one that I played. I ran into a couple glitches, but none too game breaking. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's another Tomb Raider, really. You know, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I'm about halfway through it. I think I wanted to try to hit the review embargo, but I'm not going to be able to. So by the time this goes up, my review should be on the precipice. But I don't, you know, I don't know when it's exactly going to go live. I want to do it right as opposed to quick. Yeah. But it's an interesting game because I think Lara Croft sucks. <laughs> like at least from what I've seen of her so far, yeah, Lara Croft is selfish. She's self-absorbed. She's like bad things happen because of her constantly, and she seems to have no remorse for any of it like she seems to not really care that 
these bad things continue to happen. Like she takes the relic in the beginning of the game and all of this bad shit kind of happens because of that. And she drags her friend Jonah into this mess again. And Jonah is just this meek pushover who like doesn't never, I don't know if he's like in love with Lara or I don't like know what, what the, the case is. is. Yeah. But like, he's so he's well acted, but he's so he's just a pushover. Yeah, he is. And I don't understand this dynamic between them. And I'm not entirely sure that we're supposed to like Lara Croft. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I really can't, stand her these indigenous peoples and these people in this developing world are just like getting run roughshod because she's like you know raiding tombs as it were i guess so it creates this interesting dissonance between her and how i feel about her and the gameplay which i think is really fun i like i like these miniaturized open worlds it's very reminiscent yeah. of tales it's very reminiscent of dragon quest 11 where there's these open areas that are connected to each other in a linear way so it's not like a world but you can go and explore and backtrack and find collectibles and relics and documents yeah. and stuff. And I like that kind of stuff. It's yeah. also It also has a grappling hook. It does. It does <laughs> have a grappling hook. Which I was pretty happy about. You are very excited but, uh, about that. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that because you say you don't like her because she's doing all this horrible shit. But she doesn't seem to care. I kind of feel the opposite where I don't like her because I feel like she cares too much. Interesting. Because she's constantly, constantly crying. Constantly being like, oh no, what have, what have I done? Right, but what have like, I done, right? It's like it's too melodramatic sometimes. You'd I liked her- it though. I had a fun time with this. I finished it and I had a great time with it, I'll admit. So it's like I guess it doesn't matter all that much. But like throughout it I was just like, "Why? Why are you crying? <laughs> You've been doing this for years." So you'd like, rather her own it. Yeah. Yeah. I it's because it, it's more of like a, like a 90s sentimentality, I guess, that I kind of miss of just having like this unapologetic cool person. Whereas like now it's just kind of like I don't know. I get the remorse. I'm not saying there's a character shouldn't have remorse. I'm just saying it's like it's a bit. It's a, it's dialed up to eleven sometimes when it's like you gotta you gotta calm down. Maybe I'm not there yet with her where I see this kind of term. Because she took well, could, she took the relic right, but the other guy was gonna take it anyway. Yeah. So it's like, is was it really? I, I don't know. That's fair. That's eh. fair. I do like the setting, the Mesoamerican kind of South American setting in Peru and places like that. We won't get too deep into the story to spoil it for you. I like the backtracking. It's got a Metroidvania kind of feel to it in an open yeah. world, kind of like Darksiders in that way, which is not unlike Rise of the Tomb Raider. And to be clear, I only played the Crystal Dynamics 2013 Tomb Raider for a little bit. I played Rise of the Tomb Raider extensively, but never beat it. Mm-hmm. I do that sometimes, and I talk about that in my video review script. I've been starting to jot down some thoughts for my script, and I wrote about, like, I don't know why I do that, but I do do that sometimes where I, like, play the shit out of something. And but then I just, finish. right before the game, I just like, I'm not going to finish it. You know, <laughs> I did that with Mad Max, which I loved. I did that with Dying Light for a while until I went back and beat it. I just sometimes do that where I get so enamored in collecting everything and doing all the side quests and completing the map and 100%ing everything. And then when I get to the end, I'm like, eh, that, that was not really, I'm not even, I don't even care anymore. I don't even know what's going yeah. on in the story, to be perfectly honest with you at that point. But I'm curious what you, how you feel about the combat, because I feel like the combat in the game is not good. And no. I don't mean that in terms of stealth or the use of the bow. When I'm slinking around, and stabbing people in the back and shooting them in the head with the bow and stuff, I feel quite satisfied. But when all shit goes off, whether you alert someone that you're there or the certain parts in the game I've encountered where you kind of just have to straight up fight, I find the third person shooting to be quite subpar compared to a lot of games. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's definitely not the best third person shooting I've seen, but it's pretty far from bad, I would say. Like, I, 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 I get really picky with controls. And there were there's a certain point in the story that gets like really cool where you have to fight, and I thought it was handled pretty well. I didn't really have that much of an issue getting my shots to land where they needed to go, or like I think where it falls apart is like more like melee combat. Going up to somebody and like meleeing them feels like a 
it feels like you're, you got butter on your shoes and you're like gliding next to them and like it just feels like broken but the shooting I, I i thought was fine the bow is is so fun i love the bow very satisfying yeah very satisfying to pull back and just watch it fly through yeah. a dude's head and the first time i tried to shoot a guy with that helmet on that i didn't realize and it just pops his helmet off and then i just hit restart checkpoint because I, I didn't i wanted to avoid fights at all costs when i could yeah stealth is a lot of fun in it though and, yeah. and it's and it's something that i kind of miss because obviously with metal gear basically dead and splinter cell looking like it's just done <laughs> from what i've seen it's nice to have some competent stealth because it did feel like relatively fleshed out. It's not like the stealth sections in Spider-Man that are just kind of like chucked in there, you know? First of all, we're talking about this game from a, a perspective of Crystal Dynamics didn't make this game, which is super interesting. Idos Montreal made it. Mm -hmm. So Crystal Dynamics has been a long rumor to be working on, I think, in the Avengers game. So they're working on something else. And I think they kind of consulted on this game. But I don't know that there's a much of a difference between them. I don't know that you would know. It reminded me a lot. And we talked about this last week. It reminded me a little bit of Bioshock 2 or even, I don't know, New Vegas or something where I don't know that you would know. I don't know that I would enthusiastically recommend it, especially because of the timing. And actually, we do have a question about this from Andrew who wrote in, hey, Chris and Colin, quick question for you guys. Why is it that Tomb Raider gets shoved in between these huge tentpole games? This happened with the last one, and it's true. The last one came out on Xbox One in 2015 and the next year in 2016, right around, right after Uncharted 4 came out, actually. So you know, in the months after that. So it was kind of always put in between a rock and a hard place. I'm not sure why they decided to release this game in September, but I looked at the calendar and I'm like, I don't know when you would release it and for it to be okay. I don't know that it's going to sell huge numbers either way. Yeah. It's mysterious to me though, like how they look at the calendar and decide like we're going to release our game here. This would have been a perfect August game, I think, but September, mid-September is good enough. Presumably it doesn't affect it too much because they keep doing it. <laughs> and they keep getting sequels. And Idos Montreal needs a, a hit internally, I think, because these are the guys that did Deus Ex and everything. And those games are widely considered to be good or great, but they don't sell well. So I think these guys are like really digging deep for... Oh, the new uh, like Mankind Divided? Yeah. Stuff? I think they're digging for like a critical... Not a critical hit. They have a critical hit, a commercial hit. Yeah. Which I think they've yet to stumble upon. I'm not a fan of the Deus Exes. I'm not either, personally. They're a little too dynamic for me. Like a little too... I don't like... Option-y. I don't like going up to like a a person in gameplay and then choosing to do like an execution move and then the game fades out and transitions into an animation and then fades back out back into gameplay again it's the most jarring thing and i do I, I don't understand why that was decided as a main crux of the experience it blows my mind it's funny you say that because tomb raider does something not similar but something i guess somewhat associated with that where if you sneak behind someone with your knife and hit the triangle button to stab them she stabs him right in the neck, but they change camera angles so you don't see it. Like, they, you don't see the knife going through the guy's neck. Right. Which is really weird to me because the game is overtly violent yeah, when yeah. Laura dies, which I've actually always really liked because it makes you really not want to die. Yeah, no, it's, Some really, of them it's, really, it's really graphic. Yeah. <laughs> it's messed up. I love it. I like that, too, because I remember that being a big deal when the original Tomb Raider in 2013 came out and then Rise in 2015. People were upset that it was violent in that way or that god forbid it was representing a woman being killed in that way yeah and i was like i like this because it's it, visceral yeah it makes me not literally not want to die as opposed to in games like uncharted and stuff i'll just do all sorts of crazy shit just to see what happens because nate just goes no yeah and falls. Then he, and then he ragdolls yeah and it's or, amusing almost right and you hear elena or you know sully being like nate no when it's happening and that's basically yeah. it but with this i'm like i don't want to see her get impaled yeah, exactly. Or crack her skull on a fucking rock or whatever. It's really <laughs> it's, quite dark. Yeah, no, it really is. So there's that. It also says here in our notes that you've been playing Destiny 2 Forsaken. A uh, little caveat to that. Yeah. So I own this 
godforsaken game, no pun intended, on Xbox One and PC, and the PS Plus version was out for free, and all of my friends are on PlayStation right now, and some of of them are on PC, but like most of them are on PlayStation, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to see if I can go through Destiny 2 again so I can get to Forsaken. Destiny 2 is a slog (laughs) when you've played it for the fifth time through. Man, I'm trying. I'm just trying to get to Forsaken. It's weird to complain about Destiny having too much content, because <laughs> that's not typically what the complaint is. But man, I would—I uh, sure would love to have some kind of account system where I could transfer my progress That'd or be something. Nice. Wouldn't that be good? That'd be—that would be nice. Some kind of pseudo crossplay thing. I don't know. I don't know. God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. Well, I guess we'll have to consult with you I, again in the next couple of weeks because I don't feel like it's. Is that unusual to say, like, I don't want to do this for a second or third time? Yeah. That's not a bad thing to me. Yeah. To say that. I don't know. Well, I've played through games, like, multiple times, you know? But this one is just the, f- the fact that I have to. It's the, it's the need to mm. that bugs me. It's like, I want to play through a game when I want to, not to get to a point that I was already at in, like, two prior versions of this damn game. Right. No, that makes sense to me. I don't want to do that kind of stuff either. I, I typically don't go back to games and play them again unless I really, really love them. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I know. Most games, like, literally, I'm anxious to uninstall for my PS4 when I'm done. I like literally, The only reason Spider-Man's still on my console is because the DLC is so imminent that I'm like, well, I'm probably going to need this at some point in the future. But otherwise, I would have just deleted the bitch. Like, I deleted gonna... God of War immediately after I yeah. did it. I'm probably going to keep Spider-Man just because I feel like it's a fun kind of... I feel like it's going to be, like, a soothing kind of, like, oh, I'm going to swing around for a little bit. It's a fun game. I'm looking forward to really talking about it in depth because yeah. we have a lot of great questions from the audience about it, too. And yeah, it's going to be fun. And I'll be interested in you as a Spider-Man fan really what you think of the lore and stuff like that. Oh, so, yeah. So again, if you're a listener, whether you're on Patreon or on the free feed, that will be going out in the coming days. We're going to record it right after we record this episode. In fact, we have another question from Eric Stoudinger and John Lynch both asked the same question and they were curious about what my thoughts were on the Mega Man 11 demo that was kind of stealth released last week. You didn't play it. No, right? I had no idea. So this Mega Man 11 demo came out. It was on Switch first. I think it was supposed to be released alongside the Nintendo Direct that was postponed because of the Hokkaido earthquake that happened in japan last week really quite terrible earthquake mm-hmm. in case you guys haven't read about it so we hope everyone over there is doing okay but the next day it came to ps4 and i downloaded it and i'm going to do i think a comprehensive breakdown of it from an historical point of view like a Mega Man historical point of view because there's a lot of cool things in it that i think are odes to old games but the demo itself gives you one stage block man stage and you can go through the entire stage and fight him at the end and I was originally going to avoid it because I didn't want to really spoil it for myself. I knew he existed, but I didn't want to see any more or play any more of it. But I downloaded it, and I'm kind of split on it. Like, there's this thing called the double gear system in it, which is totally new. It's controlled on the triggers or on R1 and L1. And you can use R1 to slow down time and L1 to increase the power of your buster, but you have to, like, switch them on and off quickly or they, like, it busts and you have to wait for it to reload. So, like, a cooldown system. And it just totally breaks the entire fundamental flow of what a Mega Man game is supposed to feel like. And I think that that's a problem. Inafune once said, KG Inafune, who's not involved in the games anymore, but once said that when they introduced the Mega Buster, like the powered up Buster in Mega Man 4, the game the game became too complex for what they were going for. They That it was perfect with just the shooter and the slide and the enemy weapons. And now we're getting even beyond that. And so it's fun and it's clever in its design and making you use those things, but I don't quite understand what the point of this is it doesn't feel quite right to me but in terms of its core fundamental gameplay it feels good it's the first Mega Man game in 16 9 
So that's interesting and, oh, huh. and actually really important because oh wow, you can only fire three bullets at a time and the bullets stay on the screen a little longer now. So there's little things like that that you have to kind of account for that are interesting. But I think it's pretty considering it's 2.5D and it's a lot of fun to play, but I'm a little hesitant to endorse this double gear system that seems to be at the, the foundation of it. And I don't like that when Mega Man equips another enemy's weapon that he basically turns into that enemy now. Like he looks like him. Oh, weird. If they're going to embrace the camp of Mega Man, then just do it. But otherwise, you know, let's not fuck with the gameplay too much. So that's my takeaway on it. We should get a copy of the game. I just was talking to Capcom recently. We should get be getting the game somewhat soon. So that'll be exciting for, oh, cool. for us. And especially for me, because I'm really looking forward to that a great deal. We got a few more questions I want to deal with before we go on to the news. Brent Lindquist wrote into us and said, Hey, fellas, my question is about the PS4 Pro. Back when it was just a rumor, it was speculated that having games run differently on different PS4s could lead to confusion in the PlayStation community, especially in the context of convention videos, screenshots, etc. Looking back, is this as big of an issue as we thought it might be? I'm curious about this, and the reason I put this question here, Chris, is because Tomb Raider, Rise of the Tomb Raider, or Sh- I'm sorry, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, has its performance mode for PS4 Pro, mm-hmm. where it can, you can get a great frame rate or you can get better textures. How do you kind of deal with that? What do you default to when you turn on a game like that? Because I immediately didn't care about the frame rate. I cared about the way the game looked and ran really? at 30. Yeah, I'd rather... I don't, I'm don't. i not a frame rate guy. I'm the, I did the exact opposite. I went for frame rate. Because it's a game is input. And if, if, I, if, if the game is like stuttering and I don't see something because a frame is missing, that's going to hinder my experience. And also, I just I hate the choppiness of it. You managed to play it on resolution mode? Yeah. Ah, that's I like it. I can't. It looks it looks horrendous to me. Like really, actually, I, I like, just don't, actually like genuinely awful. I don't have that again that savant kind of look where I'm like I don't, I just don't see it for that. I guess you know. I mean, yeah, I, just I don't, don't know. I <laughs> I notice it and I was like I have to every game that gives me the option I always go for it. because here's the thing like, and I remember like swapping between them, the resolution and the frame rate mode, and I didn't really notice a particularly large graphical leap. In either one. So I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to go with the faster frame rate and have it look exactly the same. Did you notice? Because no. I didn't notice any visual difference I didn't see, at all. I didn't really notice anything. But again, I just don't have that eye that a lot of people have. I just don't. Like, right. I have an eye for gameplay. I have an eye for mechanics. But it is more of like a shooter thing, I think, typically, like uh, for like arena shooters and um, really any kind of shooter. I remember Call of Duty was pretty big for having 60 frames per second, even on like the original 360. If I'm not mistaken, that could be like. I might just be pulling that out of my ass, but I remember it specifically looking like 60 frames back in the day. But I don't know. I, th- I just think the frame rate's like super important. But as far as like, is it going to be an issue? Like, is it confusing? I don't think it's confusing at all. I think people kind of understand the, the basic idea of having a pro model of something, especially with phones now and like obviously the Xbox One X. And I mean, we've had these kind of things before, like the Xbox 360 Elite. And like, I don't think it's that confusing. It's, Are you confused by it? I was originally, and I was afraid... Back in the day, like when they announced Pro, I think in 2016, I was really quite mad about it because I'm like, what are you doing? It was really soon. Yeah. Yeah. And I just didn't understand how they were going to now talk about how games were running and what modes they were running in. And, and it seems like it just never really materialized into the problem that I thought it was going to be, to be perfectly honest. But from my perspective, like I like smooth frame rates, and I think 30 frames is perfectly fine for a lot of games. Like oh. I, I have no problem with that. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Destiny runs at 30. On, on console and it looks fine it looks entirely fine tomb raider though on resolution mode does not run at 30 it is constantly dipping and i just i can't it, it's just jittery i feel like i'm having a seizure 
it's too much. Well, you taught me something interesting about capture, which is about gameplay capture, I should say, because I was texting you this weekend because I was capturing it, and I'm like, am I crazy? Is this game running it, not running at 30 frames a second? And I was capturing through my Elgato for my video review, and you taught me that you can, and maybe I should have known this, but I didn't, that you can capture at 60 frames even if it's not running at 60 frames and you just get more information from the shot and it still runs it at whatever frame rate it was yeah, yeah. i don't know why i thought it was gonna like over crank it or something like that i assume that's how it works because yeah. that's how i've been capturing it yeah it looks fine to me yeah the bigger problem i had i don't know if you noticed this was tomb raider shadow of the tomb raider is one of the rare games that gives you gamma control in addition to brightness control which is interesting and the game fluctuates its lighting sources so much and saturates the picture so much that when i was capturing i was oh, yeah. constantly changing it like i had to constantly change the gamma. Yeah, because there's that uh, perception boost that makes everything like super saturated. Yeah. I really like that effect, by the way. It looks it, like really cool when, it it, is when cool. it's happening. But I was really surprised by how much the lighting affected it. Like my gameplay footage where I would like it would look fine on my screen, but not on the laptop. And then I'd have to lower it here and then I'd get into a tomb or a cave and I'd have to hire it. And it was just a it's a little tricky. It yeah. was a little granular, actually. I was like, I yeah. wish that you guys kind of controlled this on your own. I understand brightness controls, but yeah. No, I kind of agree. I'm not sophisticated enough for those kinds of things. I do like the options menu on Tomb Raider, though. Like, yeah, there's we a lot of really cool that. options in it. There is, yeah. You can we talk talked about it a little bit that. last week where yeah. it's like you can have like you can have uh, people speaking their native languages, which I thought was like really neat because I'm like, I, I can't think of a game that's done that, to be perfectly honest. And again, I'm sure there probably is. But uh, no, it's a, it, there's a lot of little things. Like even like subtitle uh, colors. And it's like, oh, what the? This is cool. I like it. And of course, we talked about how there's a granular difficulty setting, which is yeah. really cool, where like the puzzles and the exploration and the combat all have different sliders, which is some, I, I again, to Chris's point, probably in some other game, but I don't really recall that being an option. Usually yeah. it's a, a catch all, yeah. hard, very hard, whatever. I like that too, because like sometimes I'm just like, especially if the combat sucks in a game, maybe you want the combat to be a little bit easier and the exploration to be a lot harder. A solid amount of customization you have in that game. Since you and I have been played so many games this past week, I did want to throw this question here as well from Niall Reynolds, who said, Hi, Colin and Chris. I have a question regarding getting older and playing video games and would love both of your guys' insight. The older I get, the more detached I get from games. I play every new release as I work as a manager for game, the UK versions of GameStop. I can't help but put on a game and have it feel like a chore. It seems like most games I play these days are following the same formula. Do you ever feel like this or am I growing out of gaming? I wanted to kind of focus not only on his growing out of gaming, but the formulaic approach of games today, because I think that's relevant. And I did feel that playing Spider-Man and Shadow of the Tomb Raider back to back, because while one's truly open world and one's kind of a, a linear open world, they both are collectathons and they both have lots of optional content and side quests and all that kind of stuff. And I, I do really sympathize with this thing that games really do feel the same, which is why I know that when I play Red Dead Redemption 2, it's going to be fun, but I know it's going to be the same fucking thing as everything else and it's a matter of whether we embrace it or not so i'm curious like two questions do you feel that kind of grind of the sameness and do you have moments where you feel like playing games is a chore because i've certainly encountered those moments many times in my life it's more of just where i'm at in life and also just the games that are coming out because i felt that way for a while like after fallout 4 came out i remember feeling like like when i finished it and i was like happy with it and all that I remember feeling like there wasn't really anything that i was looking forward to and i just wasn't excited and i thought like oh do i even like video games anymore but then, like, a game comes out, or, like, a, you see a trailer for something, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm excited. You know, it's really just a matter of, like, what's coming out, and what am I looking forward to? Because there are points where it's, like, a dry spell, where I'm just like, I don't care about anything coming out this year. And then 2018 happens. I do think a lot of the sameness comes from the fact that the middle market is dead, and that was pretty experimental. Uh, you know, there's no, I mean, I ring this bell a lot, but there's no, there's no real saboteurs 
There's no destroy humans anymore. There's no like weird kind of quirky games that just kind of come out alongside AAA. It's really just indie and AAA, and a lot of AAA is dominated right now by kind of either open world or like shared world kind of pseudo MMO style things going on. And indie is just indie is you know indie. It's gonna continue to be a weird landscape. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's there is definitely like a sameness going on. But I think it's I don't think it's that big of a deal. No, it's not a big deal if you enjoy it. Like at some point, we kind of have to embrace that there are only certain perspectives, and I don't mean like storytelling perspectives, but certain perspectives in which a game can be played, certain mechanics. You know, the the idea of killing something in a game seems so wrought, but at the same time, it's no one's really come up with a better solution for gameplay loops generally speaking, which is why I liked Tomb Raider so much in that respect, because you didn't fight that much, so it was kind of nice. Uncharted 4 did the same thing, where it's like, we're killing how many people? How many people is Drake going to kill? How many hundreds of people in this game? And so they scaled that back, and I like that scaled back kind of nature of, of kind of manipulating or working within the confines of what we expect out of these games, which is exciting, but I agree with you. I, people laugh at me, but I brought this game up in the past. One of the most unique games I played in the PS3 generation was a mid-tier game called Naughty Bear. And, yeah. I, and I really yeah. loved that game. It ran like shit it was certainly like not the soundest design game, but it was about a teddy bear who was outcast from all these other teddy bears and would like slink around their parties and like kill them. I and remember this. You couldn't get away with making a AAA game like that, and I'm sure you maybe wouldn't make a AAA game like that, but it was like cute and clever. And the safety and kind of the sameness and the investment and the return on investment and all that requires people to make safe choices. And we're seeing this crush of open world and collectathon games now because of the reaction to games that have been coming out now for the last seven or eight years so what we really need is someone to anticipate what's next so that we can get what's next as opposed to kind of reiterating over and over again what we get like now we have a bunch of games that are like dark souls right now we have a bunch of games that are like far cry we have a bunch of games that are like assassin's creed we have a bunch of games that are now like spider-man and tomb raider but like at the same time, I'm not really clever enough to think of like what we could possibly do about that. There are ideas I have for games that are granular and niche, but in terms of mass market games, like what are you really supposed to do? I don't, I yeah. don't have a solution. And in, honestly, in my opinion, there's a lot of ideas that are out right now that are fine, but haven't really been done incredibly well. Like Destiny is a pretty good example. Like the idea behind that is pretty incredible. It's never reached the promise of its foundation. The idea of a vast open world that's shared by everybody. And that you can have these these big sprawling fights and and arena based combat. It's awesome, but it's only, it's so limited right now. So like I'd say you know what, as long as a game's done well, I don't really mind if it follows conventions or if it's particularly like iterative. It just needs to be fun, and it needs to be good, and that's that's really it. And I will say this to people that do think that there's too much sameness in games, to the nth degree that we get very prototypical and archetypical movies and TV shows. And there's only so many ways like there. What's the fam famous thing? Like where there's only like eight stories or something like that. I think Steven Spielberg said at one time, yeah, like there's literally only like so many ways you can tell a story. So we have to be patient within the confines of that too, that some great minds are thinking of these things and, and we need, you know, some change and we need some bright people to come up with new solutions. But to his other question, I've come to points in my life and I've talked about it my sophomore year in college and other times where I just didn't play games at all. And I mm -hmm. wanted to bring this question up because I really do believe in my heart, Chris, and I think you probably agree that it's not only super healthy to come to those po points in your life, but I think it's actually completely necessary. I would really question a player or a gamer, a hardcore gamer, whatever, that never had a lull in their entire life. That's insane. Like yeah. I, I have never loved something and then 
loved it unconditionally forever, no matter what, like, and not get tired of it. Even things that, you know, like today, right after we record the Jets play week one, Monday Night Football, I'm obsessed with the Jets. I love football. Mm-hmm. But the reason I love it so much, I think, is fed by the fact that for seven and a half months a year, there is no football. And yeah. so when it comes, I'm excited and I, endure, I embed myself in it and I, I love it and I watch every game and then it goes away. But yeah. when you live in a world with video games where there, there's constantly stuff to play, you have to walk away from it and I think maintain that healthy distance. So thank you for your question. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Should we get into the news? Yeah. There's a lot of it today. There wasn't until this morning because Tokyo Game Show press conferences happen overnight from when we were recording, and there was some news that happened in between as well. So the original document I gave you has been updated quite a bit, but let's get into it. Number one, it looks like Rocksteady Studios, the UK-based team most famous for its Arkham trilogy of Batman games, is hiring for something new. That's not exactly a surprise in and of itself, but what is a surprise is that Rocksteady is openly hiring for a AAA game on, quote, next-generation platforms, end quote, according to GameSpot. Just another nod to what's around the bend. Rocksteady was founded in 2004 and launched its first game, Urban Chaos, in 2006. It wasn't until 2009 that Rocksteady became world famous on the back of its first Batman game, Arkham Asylum. Its latest game, Arkham VR, was a PSVR launch game that came out in late 2016. Now, I'm not going to speak too much more about this because I've heard rumors about Rocksteady for a long time and I don't want to get into that because I don't know what's substantiated and what's not and also things are told to me off the record. But I am curious what you'd want them to do. And I'm also curious, Chris, because I don't know the answer to this question. How do you feel about those Arkham games, specifically Arkham Asylum, City, and what Arkham Knight? which were their three games. Arkham Origins was a WB Montreal game, so we'll remove that from the equation. How did you feel about those games? Because I was quite enamored with them. Not so much the last one, but the first two I really liked a lot. Yeah, no, I I more or less agree. I actually did like Arkham Knight quite a bit. I had the same kind of issue that a lot of people had, which was I don't care about this car at all, and I hate that I have to drive it sometimes. Uh, because the, ga- the gameplay was fine without it. Honestly, I felt like it was just like a lot more tedious with it. But Arkham Knight, I love how they handled the Joker character and like the clever ways they managed to sneak him in and, and the tech that they used to change textures to put his face on him when you weren't looking at him and stuff like that. It's like, this is like a really neat kind of thing that I haven't seen before. I really like those games a lot. I was really quite impressed with what they did with Arkham. I like Batman. Like I'm not a comic fan. I'm not a DC or Marvel fan. I have no allegiance to those things. I don't buy comics. I don't even 
care a bit about them. I was making my brother laugh because I'm like, I'm not even really sure how to read them. When I pick up a comic book sometimes and there's like these asymmetrical panels, I'm like, which direction are you going? Like, how <laughs> yeah. how does the story progress? I'm I kind of like that too. I know this people probably understand that fundamentally, but I, I don't. So I've always been really attracted to Batman, though, as a character and his villains. And I actually... Arkham Knight, which I think was the weakest one, and again, the Batmobile shit was stupid, and it was filler, and it made it... I think they just wanted to wedge an open world into this game, but I did like how they dealt with the villains, how they would introduce villains. Like, I remember... I don't remember his name, but the guy who has, like, the jetpack and is, like, darting around and, like, burning yeah, things yeah. down. I like how there's just this encapsulated side quest where you're chasing him around, and you're just introduced to him and his and his kind of story, and then you can read about him and his first appearance and all that, the historical data. It's kind yeah. of cool. Like I like that kind of stuff. I dig that, and I actually really dig that about Spider-Man, which we'll talk about in our Spider-Man episode, but the gameplay was tight. It was a little heavy for me, mm-hmm. but I understand that that's kind of Batman. But yeah. with this particular thing, I, I'm, I'm excited for them to move on, and I think that what's exciting about Rocksteady is that they proved themselves so much and made so much money for WB that they can really do whatever they want. So that's the exciting thing, whether or not they're going to take a license or whether they're going to make hopefully their own IP, which yeah. I would much rather prefer. Oh, absolutely. And something Batman-esque, but not quite Batman, as it were. Number two, THQ Nordic's shopping spree seemingly never ends. The Austrian-based resurrection of the defunct THQ brand has purchased the Kingdoms of Amalur franchise from the remnants of shuttered Rhode Island-based Team 38 Studios, founded and once owned by ex-MLB pitcher Kurt Schilling. The deal, details of which are unknown, reportedly gives THQ Nordic rights to the Kingdoms of Amalur IP, the only released Kingdoms of Amalur game, 2012's Reckoning, which was published by EA, and the remnants of 38 Studios' canceled MMORPG, which was internally known as Copernicus. 38 Studios met its demise mere months after its game launched, overextended on the development of Copernicus, and with shady goings-ons in relation to loans made to the studio by Rhode Island's state government. THQ Nordic, meanwhile, owns IP ranging from Darksiders and MX vs. ATV to Saints Row and Homefront, alongside a stable of nearly a dozen studios. It was only a week or two ago that THQ Nordic acquired Time Splitters, and it was earlier in the year that they absorbed Coke Media, therefore also taking control of Coke's fully-owned publishing subsidiary, Deep Silver. The hell is going on? I am... And we have questions about this because I, I want to get into it. I am completely skeptical. I, I don't understand how you can carve out a middle ground again in this particular environment. I wish them well and I hope that they find success, but I just don't understand how a studio or a team of studios and a publisher and an, and an overarching kind of umbrella can ha- incubate so many projects at once. They were talking about having like a couple dozen projects in development at one time, That's which, insane. As, which as I've said in the past, Microsoft and Sony don't have a couple dozen projects or anything close to that in development. Yeah. So It's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't get it at all. It just seems to it just seems to me like they're casting a really wide net in the hopes that that alone is worth something. That's so many things to buy and not do anything with. Yeah, maybe they have a long game, a long plan. I don't know, but we'll see. And I'm curious how that all goes down. But I am more curious about if you played Kingdoms of Amalur. No. Great game. Yeah. Truly a great game. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it. I think if, actually my uh, my roommate was telling me about it. Because he was playing it. I think it was like, is it backwards compatible right now? It might be on Xbox. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I played was, it on PS3 a long time. Right, right. He was playing it re- somewhat recently. And he was telling me, oh, it's pretty good. And I'm like, all right. Well, that was the most the conversation ever went. I was quite smitten with it. I, I really enjoyed playing it. I was really impressed that that was their first game. And Kurt Schilling, who's notoriously a huge gaming nerd, seemed to have understood exactly what makes a good action role-playing game. It's the third-person action RPG it's very deep, nerdy, high fantasy. Mm-hmm. Lots of side quests, lots of non-linearity, crafting, character classes. 
a really pretty cool game. That was the biggest tragedy of all was that they basically wanted to make Amalur into this kind of universe. I think R.A. Salvatore, who is a famous fantasy writer, was like helping them incubate this universe. And they started making that MMO called Copernicus while Amalur Reckoning was in development. And they kind of funneled the money towards it. And they were just out of money. And that's the really decrying shame. If they just remained small and steady and kind of followed this trajectory, we would have gotten a sequel to Reckoning and they probably would have gotten their MMO out. The game sold like one and a half million copies in its first month. It's not a oh, wow. slouch for a new IP, especially at that time right after the recession when we started recovering. So I always thought that that was a big shame because I really enjoyed that game and I know a lot of people that played it really liked it as well. And I do recommend it. I, I assume you can get it for a fire sale price at this point on yeah, PS3 probably. or PC or Xbox 360. We got a couple of questions. Lucas Miliniak wrote in and said, Hi, Colin and Chris. THQ Nordic acquired the IP rights to Kingdoms of Amalur this week. It's unclear whether they are going to remaster Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning or create a new installment. I really enjoyed Reckoning and hated to hear how the mismanagement by Kurt Schilling and poor sales led to the layoffs of the entire team. I hated that too, by the way, Lucas. I knew people that worked there. And it literally happened the way that it was described in the news as happening like that. Like one person reported that his pregnant wife went to the doctor that a pediatrician and the insurance was cut off that's how they started finding out that wow that like everything was like going to hell like very quickly that's insane i was curious he wrote i was curious to know if either of you have heard or played of this game in the last jam we just talked about that i did want to kind of follow in with jonathan broussard's question though and said with thq buying the rights to the kingdoms of amalur do you think there is any chance that there will be a sequel it's mechanically a great game and would love to play another one keep making tuesdays great again we of course will do that yeah no (laughs) Because they haven't done anything with anything else that they own. Right. That's a great point. I think Darksiders is the first one where they're starting to like figure out, get the games out, like remaster them. So there's something going on there. I think they did a similar thing with Red Faction Remastered. Yeah. So I my assumption is that the money made, or I, let me let me back that up. The money spent on Amalur can probably be recouped pretty quickly by just re-releasing the game in a remastered format because it must have been garnered at a fire sale. Rhode Island lost all sorts of money on the game because they invested in it. The state government did. Right. And EA obviously didn't own the IP, but published the game and made their own money on it. So this kind of IP has been dangling out there for a while. And my assumption is that the price was right and you could quickly turn it around. So I would love to see them re-release Reckoning. But to answer these guys' questions, I do think that there's room for a sequel. And I don't know if you just buy the IP just to re-release the old one. I think that you buy the IP with intent mm-hmm. in the future of doing something with it. So we'll see. Yeah. But Chris, you should go play it. I mean, when I when I finally uh, get over this uh, fall season that's chock full of games. Yeah. No time right now. It's a yeah. good point. Number three. The Xbox's, uh, the Xbox's brand's corporate vice president has taken a direct shot at Sony on Twitter over the ongoing crossplay issue. Last week, we noted that Sony's CEO dismissed the crossplay issue, noting that PlayStation was the best place to play. Mike Ibarra, an important member of the Xbox team, tweeted a link out to the story noting that Sony, quote, still isn't listening to gamers. All games should be cross-play and progression with the right input, flexibility, and gamer options, end quote. I thought this was fascinating because Xbox has always shown a passivity this generation, which I thought was quite becoming, where they would congratulate Sony on a, a release, kind of stay silent, just kind of churn away on their own content. And this seemed to be one of the first old Microsoft moves like they used to do in the Xbox 360 era where they're like directly acknowledging their their opponent again. And I think it's kind of silly because Xbox One is getting destroyed by PlayStation 4. But he's right. Yeah. You, both things can be true at the yeah, same time. Yeah, that's the thing. I was, I mean, I was just talking about it earlier with uh, Destiny. If I was just allowed to like transfer my progress, this would be a far better experience for me. But it's not. It frustrates the hell out of me. 
<laughs> just, because I have so many people, I play with so many people on so many different platforms on games that I just have to rise my levels up and like, and I forget what's on what character and what's on what platform. It's like, ah, oh, God, I wish I could just play my multi-platform games on multi-platforms. My <laughs> assumption, Chris, is that this is going to require the publishers to really bend Sony. Yeah. If Activision or Ubisoft or these guys were like, we really want to do this, but that's just like the the kind of the tip of the sphere like this the phalanx right yeah if these guys keep pushing and say like this is what we want to do and and as we said a few weeks ago if bethesda for instance even holds back the card game and doesn't release it on playstation 4 because of its lack of cross-play functionality and cross-save functionality then i think sony will eventually have to come around i think it's just going to require publishers to play the long game with them and play the hard game even play hardball i think honestly it is kind of an inevitability thing you already kind of see the seeds of it now with like fortnite and other games so it I don't know. I think it'd be silly to assume that it's not ever going to happen. But Sony just needs to be pushed a little bit. Agreed. Number four. As you likely know by now, The Witcher is being made into a Netflix series. Confirmed to be in development this past spring, the series is set to launch on Netflix as soon as 2019, but probably more like 2020. The big news of the past week, though, is that the role of protagonist Geralt of Rivia, uh, Rivia, right? Geralt? Uh, It's Geralt. Geralt of Rivia has been filled by well-known actor Henry Cavill. Cavill is best known in nerd circles for playing Superman in Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, and Justice League. On television, Cavill's best-known role is from The Tudors, where he played Charles Brandon, Henry VIII's brother. And it's actually his brother-in-law. I love The Tudors. Great fucking show. Really, really great show. What do you make of this, Henry Cavill as Geralt? Well, man, let me tell you. I could not care less if I tried about this. I'm with you on that. We've had this conversation before about video games being turned into shows and stuff. I think The Witcher is particularly weird because it's such a story-intensive game that we... I don't know. Do we need to see Geralt? (sighs) I'm a little less enthusiastic about it, too, because as far as I understand... Well, of course, everyone knows that it's based on a Polish book series, I think, from the 80s. A fantasy series that's beloved and translated in all sorts of languages if you want to go read it. But that there was also like a television series in the early 2000s that I didn't know about that might be native to Eastern Europe, but... It was a Witcher series? Yeah, that already existed. Whoa. Yeah. Weird. Because that IP, I guess, was you know big in their domestic market. I don't know. I would love to see this work out because I think it, it would be really cool, but I want storytelling outside of games. I think games are great for storytelling in their own games. It reminds me of you know how there's all of these stories hiding out there that we can't watch or we don't know about or we don't have the time for i started watching the expanse recently just a few i heard days that was ago, good and i didn't know that it was great and it makes me fearful of like the inverse where it's like oh we're gonna get an, an expanse video game one day now like why can't we just tell the stories the way we want to the expanse was a book and now it's or a book series and now it's a television show we can leave it there the witcher was a book series and a video game can we just leave it there now does it have to be everything else yeah i don't know it's gonna be a it, stage it could play be good i think henry cavill's weird casting not like super weird, but a little bit like, uh, I guess, you know, maybe it's just because I'm polluted by Superman <laughs> and I've just seen him in a CGI mustache. Oh my God. Uh, that was the best. <laughs> it was amazing. I saw, it was Justice League for that, right? That was with the CGI mustache? Yeah. I, I watched Justice, Justice League specifically just to, just to see it. And I was not disappointed. Like, couldn't they so figure out a different solution for that? Nope. That would have been nice. They Got rid of the mustache CG, Yeah, right? yeah, because he couldn't shave it for Mission Impossible. I know, but, like, couldn't you just grow it back? I know. Like, my beard, <laughs> I, don't, I have scraggly on. facial hair, but it still grows back in a couple of weeks. So it's like, give it a, give Henry Cavill should be able to grow his facial hair. I feel like hair. it would have been easier to CGI a mustache on. Yeah. Than to, I don't know. He should have just wore, like, one of the fake, like, mustaches. Yeah. Can't Very get away with that. You can't thing. get away with that in 4K, though. 
No, no, you certainly <laughs> can't. You certainly can't. That's a good point. Yeah, the show, the Witcher show, though, Chris, is going to be rife with more controversy because, and I don't really want to talk about it here, but I think the biggest controversy around it now is that they put out a call for, what's the little girl's name in it? I can't, Siri? Siri, right. That Siri is going to be like a per, like a person of color. Right. And this is like driving everyone mad. It's, it reminds me of the James Bond thing when Idris Elba, whatever that guy's name was, the black guy was going to play Bond and that kind of fell through or whatever. Or it didn't happen. Right. It's like, does it really matter? Like, do you really, yeah. really care that much about it that it's like a huge issue to you? It is weird that it's a huge issue to people. I kind of understand the annoyance of like taking an established character that's existed and just kind of like tweaking them what for what feels kind of more like diversity points than anything. But... At the same time, it's like what's likely to be a pretty subpar Netflix show <laughs> based on a very good video game. Right. Like how rarely is it that you have a video game, a book, and a movie that are all based on the same thing that are very, very good? It's very rare that that happens, if at all. Yeah, you know? I can't really think so of any I, examples. I don't know. Calm down. You know, I'm not a guy of diversity for diversity's sake, and clearly they are doing this to score diversity points, but... Yeah, yeah. My whole argument is... James Bond is a different thing because he's been cast so many times right. that it's it's almost like, I don't care. Oh, yeah, well, that is a different story, yeah. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I definitely don't care you about that. You could put Jackie Chan as, as James Bond. I wouldn't really bet, and I... That'd old, be awesome. Old ja- <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be awesome. They should put Jackie Chan <laughs> with... Uh, what's What was the guy's name in Rush Hour? Uh, oh, uh, Chris Tucker? Chris Tucker, yeah. Those, Dude, I fucking loved Rush Hour. When Rush Hour 3 came out in, like, 2007 or 2008... I dragged people to the theater to go see it with me. Then they were so mad. People were so mad at me that I went. That movie wasn't good. No. <laughs> but I loved Rush Hour and Rush Hour 2 so much. Right. I just loved their interaction with each other. So endearing to me. It's so just, endearing. It's a very silly film. I love Jackie Chan. Number five. Sony has revealed the best-selling games on PlayStation Network for the month of August 2018. The following games were PS4's best-selling digitally sold games for the month in order. Madden NFL 19, Horizon Zero Dawn, Grand Theft Auto 5, ah. Rainbow Six Siege, God of War, Battlefield 1, Minecraft, The Walking Dead, The Final Season, Battlefield 4, and Rocket League. The following games were Vita's best-selling digitally sold games for the month in order. God of War Collection, Stardew Valley, Danganronpa 2, Goodbye Despair, Danganronpa, Trigger Happy Havoc, Chasm, Minecraft, Monster Mon Piece. <laughs> my God. Oh, no. Criminal Girls 2, Party Favors. Oh, no. Jack and Daxter Collection and Oceanhorn Monsters of Uncharted Seas. For PSVR, the best-selling games were in order. Firewall Zero Hour, which is supposed to be very good, by the way. Job Simulator, Surgeon Simulator, Super Hot VR, Killing Floor Incursion, Rick and Morty Virtual Reality, Arizona Sunshine, Electronauts, Until Dawn Rush of Blood, and PlayStation VR Worlds. And finally, the top 10 best-selling PlayStation classics were in order. Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, Bully, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, The Warriors, Destroy All Humans 2, Grand Theft Auto The Trilogy, Destroy All Humans, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, Red Dead Revolver, and Resident Evil 2. Interesting. Rockstar that's a lot making, of Rockstar. Yeah. That's a lot of Rockstar in there. Rockstar making some loot Jesus. on PlayStation Classics. Good for them. Number six. If you're a fan of Yakuza, you'll be pleased to know that the Sega incubated group of devs responsible for the series are working on something new. It's called Judge Eyes, and it was revealed at TGS. Judge Eyes is set to come to PlayStation 4 at some point in 2019, and according to GameSpot, revolves around a lawyer that investigates brutal crimes. There is a trailer out for it. It looks cool. People might want to go check it out. We'll know more next year. Yeah. Number seven, it wasn't that long ago that EA-owned studio BioWare confirmed that both Dragon Age and Mass Effect franchises will live on into the future. We talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. Even as the traditionally single-player-focused studio pivots to Anthem, its upcoming squad-based multiplayer shooter. But there are still concerns that Anthem's design philosophies and approach will alter the nature of those beloved series when they do come back. According to the studio's general manager, Casey Hudson, that shouldn't be a worry. 
GameSpot relayed tweets set out by Hudson in which he said, quote, some weird stuff going on uh, going around about how our future games will be influenced by Anthem. Of course, when we do a Dragon Age game, it will be designed from the ground up based on what Dragon Age should be. Same with Mass Effect. Anthem is a specific thing that's unique from our other IPs in many ways. What carries forward is what we learn about the game design, which is a constant evolution, end quote. This is going to be a fear for many years now with Bioware moving forward. They've pivoted away from... It's what Bethesda Game Studios is doing with Fallout 76. Yeah. And, and note that Fallout 76, what they, they banged the drum that this was a single-player game too. And they're doing that less so with Bioware's Anthem, although they did confirm that you can play it like for people like me that can play it alone. The bigger thing, Chris, is that people feel like this game is not going to be ready to go. They have about five months, and from what we've seen about it so far, I've seen some conjecture on Twitter and stuff that people think it's going to get delayed. I think it'd be wise maybe to punt if the game's not going to be ready to even the summer. Yeah. It'd be a good summer game. Yeah. You know? Because nothing comes out during summer. Why is summer such a no-man's land? I think the consensus amongst publishers at least back in the day was that people are out and about they're not playing games they're vacationing they're off from school but i agree with you i'm totally in agreement with you kids are off from school now adults lives don't change that much over the summer so our purchasing habits don't change and stuff but i think in the i think that philosophy and that conventional wisdom comes from the retail environment where maybe that was true where people were going into toys r us or kb less and they were buying games at a fewer clip or whatever but I think July and August are just these rife times for great games. No, absolutely. To assume that Anthem won't in some ways affect the future games that they make is kind of weird to me. Like, I'm sure it will. I want it to if what yeah. they're learning if from it's Anthem good. is, yeah, positive. Yeah. I'm really curious about it because like, I feel like I've seen nothing about the game. I saw, like, the guy jetpacking around. That looks cool. But how how far can you really jet, you know? How free are you? Right. It's the same thing I have with, it's the same weird issue that I have with Cyberpunk, where they went into the elevator and I'm like, oh, you only go into elevators when you're loading something. Is this an open world then? Can you jump out of this window? Which ironically, Bioware taught us. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. I want to see what they can do. I'm interested in how this game does. I think we talked about it last week or two weeks ago. The performance of this game is going to be fascinating to me. Yeah. Not only against The Division 2 and the already persistent games like Fortnite and Destiny 2 still trucking along, but just about Bioware's fan base because they don't have a fan base that gives a shit about these games. They have a fan base that cares about Dragon Age and Mass Effect. And actually, kind of, when you think about it, both of those franchises have taken pretty big hits because as far as I understand, the last Dragon Age game wasn't all that well-received. No, it wasn't. And the last Mass Effect was definitely not all that well-received. So they've got a lot riding on Anthem. It, you're right. It's true. I wonder if Anthem bombs or is not well received, doesn't sell well, if Bioware is actually done. EA, remember, has no shyness about shutting studios yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> EA's also like mired in all sorts of ridiculous. Oh, man. Uh, I really hope Anthem's good. Me too. I don't want any game to be bad. Yeah. Number eight, 505 Games, the publisher most notably associated with Rocket League, Payday, Sniper Elite, and others, has officially signed a game under development at Typhoon Studios. Typhoon was co-founded by Alex Hutchinson, a driving force behind games in both the Assassin's Creed and Far Cry franchises during his time at Ubisoft. According to Games Industry International, the studio's other two key co-founders are ex-employees of Warner Brothers Games Montreal, the team behind Arkham Origins and Arkham Knight's Batgirl DLC. The game has no target platforms, though it's been confirmed as multi-platform, thereby all but confirming a PlayStation release. Other details, including a title, are presently scant. 505 Games, I want to dive deeper into them in the future. They're becoming an interesting player in the mid-tier that you and I always talk about. Yeah, exactly. They published that random 
kind of gone home like game. What was it was called something like Origin or something like that. Oh, Adrift. They mm. they published that. They published Abzu, which I didn't care a great deal for, but people really liked. Very artistic underwater kind of exploration game. So they're building a catalog. I was looking at their list of published games, and it's a lot of garbage and nonsense, like a lot of Majesco style shit. But they're getting to a, a more appreciable place, like almost taking that place that Deep Silver had for a little while with yeah. Saints Row and all that before they kind of got sold to THQ Nordic. <laughs> so we'll see how that all goes for them. But I'm excited about that. I like Alex Hutchinson a lot and Far Cry specifically is a series that I hold very near and dear to my heart. So anything he's associated with, with his association, I think specifically with Far Cry 3 and 4, can't go wrong with those games. So Yeah. Number nine, this one broke just right before the, we started recording and this is a weird one. Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles is coming to PlayStation 4. Crystal Chronicles, as you may recall, was a GameCube-exclusive RPG that launched on the console back in 2003. While the remastered version of the game is launching in Japan imminently, I think it's actually out tomorrow, we'll have to wait until 2019 to play it here in the West. What a weird one. Yeah. It's a totally weird one. Wow. I own that game for some reason. <laughs> Number 10. I had no, 10. I had no oh, idea. Ex- no, I'm just saying I had no idea that even was a thing. I didn't mean to speak over you. I assumed you had no input on Final Fantasy Crystal It's a pretty Chronicles. good assumption, actually. <laughs> Number 10, Hideo Baba's new JRPG has been revealed at TGS. Website Push Square reports that Baba's new team, Studio Estolia, is hard at work on a game called Project Prelude Rune, which is being published by Square Enix, and it looks a great deal like a Tales game. Not a huge surprise. Hideo Baba, of course, is best known as the producer of Bandai Namco's Tales series, beginning with 2007's Tales of Innocence, all the way through 2015's Tales of Zestiria. He left Namco Ban- or Bandai Namco to start his own studio in 2017 and quickly allied himself with Square Enix, which is a huge coup for the publisher. For people that are unfamiliar with JRPGs, and I know Chris doesn't care a great deal about them, Hideo Baba, other than the Final Fantasy system and the Dragon Quest system and kind of those ecosystems that they've developed around those series, is an incredibly huge player in the Japanese role-playing game scene. A really nice, friendly dude. One of the few dudes in Japan that I've met in Japan multiple times and over here in the States that recognizes me. And he doesn't speak English, but is always friendly, always has a big smile on his face, shakes my hand. Really, really friendly and nice guy. And I'm wishing him nothing but the best. And I really think it's super smart that Square got in, in with him. Because I was looking at the trailer for his game, which again is called Project Prelude Rune, and it looks like a Tales game. Like, straight up. Yeah. So now Square just has their own Tales series, basically. Which is smart. Tales yeah. is a consistent seller. And we're going to talk again about Tales very shortly. Number 11. Silicon Era reports that Japanese studio Psy Games, the team that recently ported Zone of the Enders, the second runner, to PS4, is officially in talks with publisher Konami to possibly make a new Zone of the Enders game. The website translated an interview from Japanese publication Dengeki, in which Kanichi Kondo of Psy Games said, quote, Of course, we as a company would like to make a completely new game. We're talking to Konami about doing a sequel if Zone of the Enders, the second runner, Mars, sells well and gets good reviews, end quote. Zone of the Enders, the brainchild of Metal Gear Solid creator Hideo Kojima, launched on PS2 in 2001. The second runner, its proper sequel, launched two years later. Other than a GBA-exclusive tactical RPG, also launched in 2001, and a collection from 2012, Zone of the Enders has been a completely dormant series, other than its two mainline PS2 releases. Speaking of side games, their new game was revealed at TGS. It's called Project Awakening, and it's an action RPG for PlayStation 4 due out at an unknown time in the future. So these guys are moving and shaking. This might be another studio similar to Platinum Games from software, others that might have some prevalence in Japan soon. And the biggest thing that I thought was interesting about this, Chris, was that Konami's yeah. interested in a game. That's the thing that I took away. It was like, what? Konami's doing something? What? Yeah, that's that very interesting. That isn't a pachinko machine? I guess I never really made the connection in my own mind, like the, the mental tether that they must have obviously endorsed Zone of the Enders re-release. So yeah. it seems like Konami is maybe dipping its toe back in. It's They've been given a little bit of distance from what happened with Kojima and Metal Gear Solid Five. Metal Gear Survive obviously wasn't a hit with people. 
But this gives me hope not only for... If they're talking about Zone of the Enders, certainly they must be talking about Castlevania, right? Certainly they must be talking about Contra. Yeah. And the things that actually... Silent Hill, the things that they own that actually matter. So that's what I took away from that. We'll see. Yeah. Number 12. It looks like Call of Duty Black Ops 4's much-vaunted Battle Royale mode is aiming for 80 players at a time. IGN relays word from a Game Informer article in which Dan Bunting, one of the leaders of developer Treyarch, noted that they were testing the Battle Royale mode, known as Blackout, with 100 players, but that 80 currently serves the gameplay experience, in quotes, better. That number can roll up and down in the future, however, including in the final release. IGN notes that if Blackout holds at 80 players through the beta and into release, it will fall, fall short of the 100-player matches PUBG and Fortnite are famous for, while falling... I guess by, well, I, I wrote, re, uh, miswrote this while being above Battlefield 5's Firestorm mode, which is a 16-team, 64-player battle royale. So there's that. And again, yeah. one of these games is going to lose. Yeah. And I think we already know which one it yeah, is. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Number 13. Several episodes ago, we alerted you to a Horizon Zero Dawn board game being made by Steamforge Games. Steamforge has Sony's permission to make the game and was planning on kickstarting it. Well, the Kickstarter has launched and it took fewer than two hours to fully fund the game, according to Polygon. Originally seeking $200,000 to get the project off the ground, the campaign has nearly a million dollars pledged to it with more than two weeks to go at the time wow. of recording. So if you're interested, you can still get involved. The game looks pretty cool. I'm not a tabletop guy through and through. I like Axis and Allies and other games. I'm not going to invest in this, but you can still get your Kickstarter pledge in if you want to support that's a cool. That's a cool success story. That's a lot of money. Wow. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. This might speak to Horizon's uh, popularity. Yeah, we'll see. Can't wait for a sequel to that. I can't wait for a Fortnite Monopoly. Ugh. It always reminds me whenever when, when everyone brings up Monopoly now, it reminds me of that JPEG people send around where it's just a zoom in on no, and no. no. Yeah. That's such <laughs> that image is the best. Number 14. This is a wrap up. The PlayStation blog revealed that der, it, this is Deracine, I think is Deracine, I think is how Darren, you say it. Yeah. Whatever. There's no accents in my write up, but there's there's accent a goos over both E's. Oh, okay. So I think it's Deracine. A PSVR game from Sony owned Studio Japan and from software will launch on November 6th. Push Square reports that publisher Bandai Namco has trademarked Katamari Damacy Reroll, seemingly indicating an upcoming Katamari game. The last mainline Katamari game was Touch My Katamari, which was a PS Vita launch game from late 2011. <laughs> Gamatsu reports that One Piece World Seeker, the upcoming open world PS4 game, has been pushed into 2019. Gamatsu also reports that Space Channel 5 VR, Arcada, is coming to PS4 VR in 2019. And that interesting party game Wizard's Tourney is coming to PS4 sometime later this year. Bandai Namco has revealed that Tales of Vesperia Definitive Edition, the once Xbox 360 exclusive Tales game from 2008, is coming to PS4 on January 11th, 2019. Can't wait for that. Dead or Alive 6 now has a release date from Koei Tecmo of February 15th, 2019. GameSpot reports that Samurai Showdown's fighting series, the once popular SNK franchise, began in 1993, and a favorite of my brother Dagan's, is returning and will come to PS4 in 2019. And finally, God Eater 3 will launch in the West on PS4 in 2019 look at all that should we go into the new game releases yeah let's take turns i want you to start this week all right you start with black clove all righty black clove quartet knights ps4 retail friday release in this magic battle action game take part in four on four team battles and cast an array of magic spells to defeat the opposing team use your role and spells to the best possible effect and cooperate with your teammates to win the battle. There's an exclamation point there. <sighs> Boundless comes to PlayStation 4. In a boundless universe of connected worlds, you can open portals to travel seamlessly and expand your adventure across the universe. Forge your destiny and sculpt your world in this epic voxel sandbox MMO built on endless possibilities. Voxel sandbox. 
Wow. I remember when voxel became yeah. like a, a buzz term like five years ago. Yeah, I forgot about it. Resogun was the one that really started using voxels as like a buzzword. Anyway. Yeah. To you, Chris. Claws of Furry? Yep. That's not a misspelling. That's not a misspelling. No. Okay. Claws of Furry, PS4. Uh, Claws of Furry is a beat-em-up style co-op action game where up to four players can take on the roles of vigilante ninja cats on a mission to rescue their master from the evil claws of an unknown boss. You gonna play that one? Uh, hey, uh, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Construction Simulator 2 comes to PS4. It's a Wednesday release. The mobile hit Construction Simulator 2 is now available for your PS4. Take a trip to the USA. Complete road construction with purpose-built machines and enjoy an even more varied day at work on the construction site. Mm. I already live in the USA. I don't need to take a trip there. Yeah. Thank you. Fossil Hunters comes to PS4. It's a Wednesday release. Uh, You are an adventuring fossil hunter who has traveled to a remote, mysterious dig site to discover the most incredible fossils the world has ever seen. Discover and assemble fossil creations as you avoid cavens, monsters, and traps. (sighs) All right. All right. Yeah. Marble Duel comes to PS4. It's a Thursday release. Magic duels are the way to solve any dispute in a kingdom conquered by the cruel witch and her minions. Master and improve the destructive power of the spheres, and you will become the most fearsome mage ever. I got excited for a second because I thought Marble Duel implied, like, Marble Blast. Have you ever played Marble Blast? No, what is Marble Blast? You ever played Marble Blast the Ultra? I don't think it's so. It's like this, uh, it's hard to explain. It's like Monkey Ball, kind of. Mm. But, uh, I don't know. It's just like a physics game. That I really liked. Was, what was it on? I think it's on PS3. Mm. It was PS3, Xbox, or 60. I know it was like Xbox Live Arcade, but I'm sure it was on PS3. I missed that one. It's fun. It's a fun little, little game. NBA 2K19 comes to PS4 retail. Uh, NBA 2K celebrates 20 years of redefining what sports gaming can be. From best-in-class graphics and gameplay to groundbreaking game modes and an immersive open-world neighborhood? Yeah, it's in quotes for some reason. Yeah, it's... it's it's a little weird. All right, yeah, sure. Some might say it's a little nefarious coming to PlayStation 4. Tired of playing the hero? Nefarious is a 2D action platformer where you get to be the villain. Step into the wily shoes of Crow, an evil genius on an epic quest to steal princesses for his royalty-powered, world-conquering Death Ray. I like Death Rays. You do. They're fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Neon Wall comes to PS4. It's a Friday release. Escape your way out of Neon Wall by solving puzzles and overcoming a variety of challenging levels. Over the course of the game, you will need to combine... Uh, you will need a combination of skill, concentration, and precision to be victorious. I like that in war- that name. I don't yeah. know what it means, but it's Neon Wall. It's a good wall. name. Yeah. It's one word. Yeah. NHL 19 comes to PS4. It is available at retail, and it is a Friday release. Play on outdoor rinks and journey from the ponds to the pros in the new and returning modes. New gameplay tech delivers explosive edge skating with more acceleration, speed, and responsiveness. I used to be a huge fan of the NHL series. I don't play them anymore because they're too time-consuming. Yeah. But what's cool about these games, and we've talked about them in the past, is that with a 9- or 10-month incubation period before they have to get the next one out, they focus on one thing every year. And it seems like this year they're focusing on skating, which is cool. They focused on stick handling one year and shooting another year and goaltending. So... It makes you wonder, like, maybe if you took three years, like we were talking about a few weeks ago, yeah. you put all of that in one game and then release roster updates and stuff, but God forbid. 
Anyway. Shadow of the Tomb Raider, PS4 retail Friday release. Experience Lara Croft's uh, defining moment as she becomes the Tomb Raider. In Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Lara must uh, master a, d- a deadly jungle, overcome terrifying tombs, and preserve, uh, per- persevere through her darkest hour. I'm dyslexic. Leave me alone. <laughs> Someone from Square Enix is listening to that being like, thanks for really selling our game well, Chris. <laughs> it's a good game. No, I don't. It is. It is a good game. It's got its problems, but it's yeah. it is a good game. Stay comes to PS4 and Vita. It's a Wednesday release. When Quinn wakes up alone in a locked room with nothing of note save for a computer hooked up to an internet chat room in which you're present, you become his single ray of hope. <laughs> it's a run-on sentence, but it sounds like a neat idea. Yeah. Super Street, the game, <laughs> comes to PS4. Start start from the bottom with nothing but scrap as you build your dream ride part by part. And use it to tear up asphalt in a wealth of different game modes and environments for automotive tuning culture. What? I. Yeah, no, I can't make any okay, sense. Okay, okay. I just want to make sure <laughs> I wasn't, like, broken. Trickster VR comes to PSVR as a Friday release. A procedurally generated fantasy adventure starring floating islands, epic loot, and hordes of orcs. Try your skills against orc combat expertise, ancient magic, and ragtab- ragtag airships. Pardon me. Ragtag airships. <laughs> Nothing like a ragtag airship. I know. I always wanted a ragtag airship. <laughs> V-Rally 4 comes to PS4 retail. Enjoy an extreme off-road racing experience while becoming an expert in a demanding simulation. Take on the challenges of rallies, rallycross, drifts, buggies, and hill climbs, and, and, and set off on a spectacular journey across every continent. Every one of them? Every single one. Holy moly, every continent. Oh, boy. Hey, I was looking at a map recently, and I realized that there are some maps that say that there is a fifth ocean called the Southern Ocean. Have you seen this? What? Yeah. What? Yeah, there's a a fifth ocean now. That's too much. Almost an Arctic Ocean-like thing in the south. Nah. I'm gonna I'm gonna nix that. Yeah. Personally, that's that's like uh, that's like the whole Pluto thing. Yeah. It's like I'm just gonna. It's it's a planet. Whatever. (laughs) I think there. You know, I was so fascinated with New Horizons, the probe that went to Pluto. Yeah. And got these like amazing pictures of it. Yeah. After, except instead of these four pixel grainy things. And I like this idea that Pluto attracted Sharon, its moon, but they're so similar in size to each other, or at least so small and similar in size that the Barry Center where they rotate is, a, is in the middle of them. So they're actually tumbling around each other. Oh, weird. Pretty cool. That's neat. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. Obviously, the, I don't know, I, I think I've only played Shadow of the Tomb Raider, so I can only really speak to that. Yeah, same. Shadow of the Tomb Raider. If you're in a, to- if you're looking for a third person action, if you're a Tomb Raider fan, I don't see why you wouldn't buy it. Yeah, and there's uh there's cool moments in there that honestly I really liked. So, and I'm sure NHL 19 is fine. Yeah. By the way, I haven't played an NHL game in a few years, but I'm sure it's fine. Should we read the questions from the audience? Seven out of ten, not enough ice. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> we have, I think, ten questions or so to close out with today that I picked out. All right. I selected artisanal questions. Reader mail. Reader mail, indeed. Remember, if you want to submit questions, comments, concerns, ideas, thoughts, notions, etc. to our show, Sacred Symbols, support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Stand. $2 a month or up gets you access to that. You can also vote on other things that affect other shows. And remember, for $5 a month or up, you can get early access to every episode of this show ad-free and early access to all my other shows, all my other podcasts, I should say, as well, including Fireside Chats and Knockback. Your support is appreciated and essential. It's the only way Chris can live his life of luxury. <laughs> Samuel Mills wrote into us and said, Hello, gentlemen. Hope all is going well for you. Thank you, Samuel. Yeah. My question is for Chris. Ooh. Since you love grappling hooks in games, I was wondering if you had played any of the games in the Just Cause series. 
Just Cause and 2 and 3 have amazing grappling hook mechanics and are fun games to just screw around in. I'm personally looking forward to Just Cause 4 coming out later this year. I totally forgot that was happening. Yep. Thanks for the love and work you do. Oh, I'm sorry. He says, thanks for the love and work you put into Making Tuesday great again. Uh, thank you, Sam. Just and Cause, yes. are you a fan? Yeah. That was actually one of the first games that I, I really realized how much I loved grappling hooks. Because I remember the demo came out on 360 and I was like, this is awesome. I think I just like physics-based games. I, I like a game with like a really interesting physics model because they're just really fun to mess around mm -hmm. with. I think that's really what it comes down to. And the grapple, a grappling hook is just like the most, uh, I guess, like intimate way for a player to interact with the environment and like the physics objects in it. But no, I'm looking forward to just Just Cause 4 comes out on my birthday, which is awesome. <laughs> it's beautiful. Just Cause 3, I downloaded when it came out. It was like, what, late 2015, I think. And... I just couldn't get over. There was like some peculiar shooting mechanics in it that I just couldn't get over. Like, oh, you, the shooting's weird. Yeah, like it's not right. Like you don't aim with the triggers, or there's some. I don't remember exactly you what it was. The stick in? Yeah, I think you. I think I'm fine with that. I just. I'm used to that. I just can't do it. Yeah, there's just I don't certain know. things that break. Like I just can't play games like that. The thing to me is like when you can tether a cow to a plane. It's almost like. Does this need anything else? Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. The the disappointing thing for me though about that, Chris, is that I really want to like it. Yeah, it, I mean, in fairness, I didn't I didn't play through. I, I played one and two. I didn't pl I didn't play three just because I, I just I think when it came out, I just didn't really have the time. But I'm excited for four. It just looks like a mess, <laughs> in like the best possible way. What's so. the guy? What's the protagonist's name? Rico. Rico. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Have you played the first one? No, I only the played first the one's second the one funniest the one. Yeah, because it's like. It's this game that they clearly didn't know what the heck, what the heck it was. So it's just this really serious acting, and I think it's it's persisted throughout the entirety. But it's like it's this really low tier uh, B movie acting, and it's it's the it's so good, <laughs> it's so good. The scorpion is inbound. It's like what? <laughs> Maybe I'll check it out. They should release a collection of those games. They should. Dustin Payne wrote into us and said, "Hi, Colin and Chris." As Naughty Dog is closing in on releasing The Last of Us Part 2, what do you think is the studio's next move after they release the game and presume DLC? Do they create a new IP, dig back into the Uncharted franchise, or another older IP, or look at doing a licensed game like Insomniac did with Spider-Man? What sort of new IP would you guys like, or what major license would you like to see Naughty Dog handle? Thank you both for bringing back intelligent discourse to a space that really needs it. Hashtag Make Tuesdays Great Again. Thank you, Dustin, for your question. What would you like to see Naughty Dog do? I should throw in that they're not going to go back to Uncharted, and they're not going to... Yeah. They, I think they will one day. But not immediately, and I think that they're never going to make a licensed game. So you can cut those two things out. But what would you like to see them do? I think I speak for everybody when I say we need a Last of Us team racing. I knew it. I started shaking my head the minute I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> they're in a pretty unique position where they're like one of the top dogs. No pun intended. Again, Jesus. Look at you. I'm punning around. Why don't you throw a portmanteau in there like, <laughs> while you're at it? No, I mean, um, I think the best bet is a new IP. I think they could handle, honestly, whatever they, they... They seem to have done fine with literally everything they've ever done, ever. So I have no reason to doubt that they couldn't make like a really good shooter or a, a really solid uh, racing game or a really solid RPG. I'd be interested to see them try any number of things. I think it's just more or less what they want to do, you know? I would prefer not to see them go back to old IPs, honestly. I, I don't think they will. I think that the way Uncharted 4 ended, to me, indicates that they will clearly go back. I think that there's a story to be told. And I'm going to spoil Uncharted 4, so I'll give you a second to shut it off. Did you play Uncharted 4? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to spoil Uncharted 4. Going to give you a second. It obviously ends with the prelude. Or no, it's not the prelude. It's the, the epilogue. Epilogue, yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. With the daughter and mm -hmm. them in the future. Clearly, there will be an Uncharted game starring her. 
I, I think that that's somewhat obvious. And that would be cool. But I think that they threw that out there to be like, we'll go back to that later. I think they did it more in the sense of like, like a Halo legendary ending where they like, hey, he's still alive. Whoever has this next, run with it. You right, know, right. I think that's more of what they were doing. I, I really doubt that they would go back to it just because you don't really see developers go back all that often. Yeah, it's not incredibly common. And I will say that Uncharted 4's release schedule was a little fucked up because, you know, the game was basically half made and then basically they had to remake it. So that kind of delayed them. Like, I don't think that they necessarily wanted to put The Last of Us people onto that. Like, I don't think Neil and Bruce wanted to make Uncharted 4. And I, I do think that Uncharted 4... I know that people disagree with this. I think Uncharted 4 was, like, great, but I don't think it was, like, Uncharted great. And I, I definitely didn't find it all that memorable. I didn't play the DLC that starred Chloe. I didn't play that, and I'm looking forward to playing that at some point. But the thing that bothers me the most with Naughty Dog, Chris, is that, or when people talk about them, is, like, go back to Jack and Daxter. And I'm like, shut up! That's insane. You know, like, that is that is literally insane to, <laughs> to, for, to, to think that they should go back to that kind of stuff. Yeah. What, to your point... Here's what they excel at. They excel at third-person action and storytelling. And so I would love to see them kind of segue into first-person, make a shooter, a first-person shooter, but maybe something like, you know, not like Uncharted in terms of thematics, but something that's story-driven, that's 15 hours long, that is what it is. Something kind of like Metro or... Yeah. Not the new Metro, which is open world, but something like Metro Last Light or Metro 2033 or something like Singularity, which was a game that Raven made a long time ago. I would love to see them make a story-driven first-person shooter, single-player atmospheric you know great dialogue great characters that'd be awesome but they're made to make third person games that's what their engines do that's what their talent does that's what they're used to and so i would be surprised if they didn't make it ultimately surprised if they didn't make a third person action game in the yeah and i'm sure by the way that it's probably in pre-production right now because mm-hmm. they're wrapping up i really do think that we're less than a year away from uncharted or from last of us part two. Oh, easy so they're obviously all hands on deck in a way to get that out and a crunch on it. But at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an offshoot team there working on what, whatever was next. And there was a lot of theories that they wanted to make a space game. Remember they embedded that. I, f- I forget what it's called. Starlight or something like that, which is like a, a fictional IP in the last of us universe that people thought they were going to draw out and make a game. And who knows? That'd be awesome. Mark Elfring wrote into us and said, Killzone Shadowfall, a very underappreciated game. I'm throwing that in there. Seemed to effectively integrate the touchpad and sound system in the controller. Well, audio recordings played through the controller. I understand the touchpad is a bit ridiculous, but why has no one made use of the controller sound system? Seems like an Uncharted for walkie-talkies would have been cool. Or it seems like in Uncharted, walkie-talkies would have been cool. I agree. I liked that a lot as well, as long as you can shut it off. There are there are some games that use the controller functionality, the audio in it. I'm trying to think of one of them in particular where you couldn't shut it off. Yeah. There was a game I played recently where if you got damaged enough and were low on health... I think it's Guacamelee 2, actually. If you got low on health, it would ping through the controller and you like couldn't shut it off. I hate that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I hated that. So... What do you feel about that? I, I do feel like there is something special there. I did like the audio recordings playing through the controller as I was going through the environments in Killzone, but there aren't many notable examples other than that. I thought what was cool about that was um, sometimes the audio, when it's all coming from one source, it can get kind of muddy and it's kind of hard to d- make out what's being said. And I kind of liked that it was like a separate audio source that I could actually like straight up like pay more attention to because it was from a separate source. I think that stuff's really cool. Touchpad, I, I don't like. <laughs> I just don't like it. I just think it's a waste of space on the controller. I feel like it's neat, but it's also a bit of a like a Wii kind of thing where it's like, look at how neat this. Is. The Wii did that, didn't it? Yeah, it the, like yeah, mic, the Wii did have like, some pinging like in in, in Galaxy and other things. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, this is neat, but it's also I I would lose this in a heartbeat, and it wouldn't really do that much to. I I, I probably wouldn't miss it. I sometimes feel that way about Rumble. Uh, I don't know that it really adds anything for me to it, the game, and it 
kills the battery too. To me, it does. I, and I know that only because like I've had experiences where I'm playing like a shooter, and then like the controller starts to die, and then Rumble is usually the first thing to go. And you're playing, and you're like, oh my god, this feels like a, I feel dead <laughs> playing this. There's like no haptic feedback at all. It's weird, but it's also just probably because it's ingrained in my head, right? From the last like I don't know what twenty, like what fifteen to twenty years that's been around. Yeah, it's been about yeah a little more than twenty years now. Rumble Pack on N64 and the PS1 DualShock rumbled, I think, as well. Maybe we take it for granted. I don't know. Corey Hahn wrote in and said, what is your favorite PS4 soundtrack so far? Where does the PS4 soundtracks rank in your pantheon of gaming soundtracks? My favorite soundtrack for the PS4 era is Bloodborne and is good enough to join my favorites of all time, which include Halo and The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. My question stems from researching and reading about the composer of the God of War soundtrack, where I found out that the composer Bear McCreary, who was also composed for Battlestar Galactica and The Walking Dead, conducted research on Nordic sounds and instruments and developed the score based upon his findings. I have to be honest with you here because I'm super interested in what you have to say about this, Chris, because I think you appreciate this stuff more than I do. I'm a musician and I love scores and I love music, but I don't really, in modern games, give a shit about the music. If, if it's not a dialogue-heavy game, or if I'm not playing like The Last of Us or something or Bioshock, if I'm like running around collecting things like in Spider-Man, for instance... I played half of Spider-Man or more with podcasts on in the background. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I think what matters is if it's not there, if a great soundtrack isn't there, it's not the biggest deal. But when a great soundtrack is there, it adds a ton. And I think that's really what it comes down to, where it's like it's there. It's kind of like you miss it if it's not there. But it's not going to like affect the whole experience. But uh, as far as like a favorite PS4 soundtrack so far, I know it's cheating because it's technically a ps3 game but i think the last of us soundtrack is like really good i can't think of another god of war was also pretty good but i think uh i think last of us is probably my favorite one i honestly because the guitar on it is so, yeah. so weird beautiful yeah it's beautiful and so he played it on like this decaying guitar or something like the, the the lengths that these audio engineers go through to go to to make things sound like identifiably like that franchise is insane no, it's awesome. And I that's what makes me feel so bad about it. Like where I'm like sound sound design is essential and important and we would notice if it was gone. Like you said, like like maybe you note it more if it's if it's there and it's good or whatever. I don't know what the case might be, but from my perspective, I feel like audio, like soundtrack particularly, has gotten less important the longer games have gone on. Like if I go back and play NES or SNES games, like I love the soundtracks in a lot of those games because they were so important to an otherwise very limited experience. It was like a yeah. major component of the experience because there was only X, Y, and Z is all that's possible in this game. And X yeah, happens yeah. to be the way it sounds while in these new games, they're so dynamic and there's so much going on and a lot of ambient noise and crowd noise. And I literally just put on music or podcasts in the background all the time when I play games, unless it's like I'll mute it when there's like dialogue or like there's a cutscene, I'll shut it off and like listen to it. And then I'll just put the sound back on. Cause I like to multitask, but I also feel like I don't, really need to be immersed like that in some of these games. And and there are exa- there are exceptions, like Bioshock's an exception in other games where the sound is such an important part of the experience. But I'm just not a big fan of, of game scores these days. Not because they're bad, but because right. I don't really notice them. I think the focus has shifted from melody to ambience in recent years. Because, like, obviously when in the NES, you couldn't really do a lot of ambience. There was very little you could do. So what they were kind of forced in a lot of ways to come up with a melody that would stick in your head that would kind of make you excited to play it because and now it's more like just kind of generic cinematic strings to just kind of accompany the mood of what's going on and it's less focused on like having an identifiable theme uncharted i think has a great identifiable theme there's like a melody that's there that you can recognize i think halo has a recognizable theme that you can recognize but these are all games that were like 
you know, 2001 to 2010, when that kind of shift was starting to happen. Like Anthem, I, I don't know what the theme to Anthem is yet, or if it even has one. You know, <laughs> GTA 5, does GTA 5 have a theme? No. I think it's more of just like the shift of focus and what was necessary back then versus what's necessary now. Sure. Makes sense. But I miss melodies. I miss good melodies in, in video games because they're kind of not around anymore, except for Doom. Yeah, there you go. There's your Doom <laughs> reference. Someone said that you would reference Doom in every episode so far. Yeah, I have to. Contractually Tony, obligated. Tony Carnese wrote in and said, being 37 years old, I've grown up with 8-bit, then 16-bit, and up until modern HD and 4K generations of video games. As you have both mentioned in past episodes, I'm still content with the current gen of consoles and the content they give us. I'm not sure if you're in the know or not, but I'm curious of both of your opinions. Where can the next-gen possibly go that they aren't... Uh, next-gen console possibly go that they aren't already? Better frame rates, maybe? Lifelike textures? Is the PS5 going to include Smell-O-Vision VR? Find a crayon labeled Curious and color me that. What do you think the future gen will bring to the table? This is a great question. We've touched on this briefly in the past, but I want to get into it a little bit deeper because I am somewhat puzzled what is possibly going to happen other than prettier games, unless it's back-end processing power, making games more dynamic with AI and all that kind of stuff, which I think is really promising as well. But I don't have the technical knowledge to know where they can go from here. Yeah, I'm per I'm perfectly content with the way games look right now. I don't think that they look bad by any means. And even if they don't, it's like graphics to me are like the least important thing. Uh, to me, like performance and like what the game is and like what the gameplay is and how challenging is it, how dynamic is the AI. Like there's everything to me is more important than graphics. That's specifically true specifically because we have all these old games that are re-releasing now that look the same. Like Mega Man. Like you could play Mega Man now and it's fine because the gameplay is so good. My hope is that we get true barrier breaking kind of, oh, hey, there's a mountain over there. I'm just going to climb it. I'm going to go there. Like the stuff we saw with Skyrim on a single player level, but like brought to like a shared world space, a multiplayer game with that breadth would be insane. Like cyberpunk, but like multiplayer would be insane. That city looks to scale. I want AI. I want AI improvements real bad. Because the AI has, has been so... <laughs> I'm actually surprised AI is as bad as, it's, as it is still. Computation power is just really important to making a game more dynamic, making the AI smarter, making it harder, making it... You yeah. know, more sophisticated. If a game has to look worse to have a, a far better amount of systems uh, dynamically interacting with each other, I'll, I'd rather have that, personally. Me too. And I think that's what you're going to get. I know that the Nemesis system in Mordor, Shadows of Mordor or whatever that game was called, the Lord of the Rings game. Oh, yeah. I know was apparently not possible on the old consoles because of not the graphical push, but the amount of computation that they can do on the back end to make the game smarter. So that is not sexy, but it's what I think will make the games ultimately sexier. Yeah. You can't really go on stage and talk about that in an effective way, I don't think. I think you could. You, they want to see. You, you could demonstrate it, I mm. think. Once you see like AI doing things you've never seen them do before, it's hard to visualize what that could be because obviously it's abstract because no one's done it yet. But once you see, like, I don't know, uh, you're playing an FPS from 2015 and you notice that all the enemies have very similar patterns, but maybe they dynamically start reacting to how many enemies are left on screen or like what the lighting is or like i don't know uh there's a there's a ton there's a ton that you could show it's just a matter of like what the idea is mm. we'll see yeah shamway wrote in and said hey colin and chris thanks for making tuesdays great again and he mm. said for the pregnant pause in between that <laughs> fridays were better but i'm now on patreon thank you for your support and thank you all to support us on patreon we appreciate you could you please name some good books about the history of video games uh, or the industry Thanks, and P.S., I will continue to ask this question until it's answered. Just joking, or am I? Well, just in case you're not joking, I wanted to answer it immediately. 
so you can move on to asking other things. I brought up an article that I wrote a long time ago to just give you some recommendations. And I don't know if Chris has any, but he can chime in. These are six books that I think gamers should read. And they're fascinating looks into history, fascinating looks into fundamental design philosophy and all that kind of stuff. So the big one, the newest one that I wanted to call out is Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. Blake Harris is a personal friend of mine, so you guys should know that and make your own decisions. But Console Wars is the story of the SNES and Genesis competition in the early to mid-90s, and it's an excellent book. I would recommend Game Over by David Sheff, which is basically... Game Over is almost 20 years old now, but it's the definitive history of Nintendo from the beginnings of like Game & Watch through like SNES. It's excellent. Excellent book. Really, really good stuff. Masters of Doom by David Kushner is about the history of id. That's a really, really, really awesome book. They tell amazing stories about when they were making like Commander Keen and shit. They would they all worked at this like call center or something and they would go in and steal their computers in the middle of the night and like work <laughs> on them over the weekend and then bring them back. And stuff like that. Really, really great. That's insane. Yeah, really great stories there. Masters of Doom is a fantastic book. Replay the History of Video Games by Tristan Donovan's a more general history book that you guys might want to read. And Chris Kohler, who works at Kotaku now, I think wrote Power Up, which is kind of the history of Japanese video games from a Japanese perspective, a pretty good read as well. So there's a lot of great games out there, or game books out there. If you're interested in more technology or Silicon Valley history, The Fire uh, in the Valley, which is by Paul Freibinger and Michael Swain, is a almost textbook, but it's a really, really great read about the history of Silicon Valley, the, the advent of the microprocessor, all that kind of stuff as well. So you can go check that out. Seth Arnold wrote in and said, Hey, Colin and Chris, loving the podcast. Thank you. Let me take you back to 2014 Gamescom, where Wild Sheep Studio, led by Michael Ansel from Ubisoft, announced their new PlayStation-exclusive Wild, an open-world survival game where you could use your powers to possess different animals. Ever since the announcement, there were sprinkles of new footage for the next year or so, and they kind of went dark, and I haven't heard anything about it since. Any idea of what happened? Is it caught in development hell, and do you think it will ever see the light of day? Do you remember this game, Wild? I forgot about it so hard that I can't even envision the logo or even like the reveal or anything about it. So to remind people, he already talked about this. Michael Anseller comes from Ubisoft. I think he was one of the players of Be- in Beyond Good and Evil and uh. some other stuff. I think maybe Rayman as well. I could be making that up. But anyway, he kind of split off like he was still working at UB, but kind of split off and made this other studio. And they were making a PS4 exclusive called Wild. And Wild was first revealed, as many of you might remember, at Gamescom in 2014, which is interesting. And... It was kind of vaunted as being this open world kind of game where, like he was saying, you possess animals. And it was a little bit nebulous about what it was and where it went and all of that. I, in preparation for this question, read a little bit about the game since then. And what I could find is that in early 2017 was the last time that they ever mentioned it. And it was that the game was still in development and that there's some assumptions that the game is obviously not going to come out. So this could be like this generation's The Agent or something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> So I don't have any new information for you other than what you can easily find on Google, other than to say that, yeah, the game was revealed in 2014, PS4 exclusive, Michael Ansel, Black Sheep Studios, trickled out a few more things here and there. 2017 is the last time anyone talked about it, and it's pretty obvious that it's not going to come out. So I'd love to be wrong. I don't think the game ever looked extraordinarily great to begin with, but that's what I know. Mm. What a weird... That's so weird. Jack McPherson wrote in, said, hey, Colin and Chris, I've been loving this show so far. At this moment, I haven't played a game in at least three months. Ooh. This is because I am a PhD student trying to get my thesis completed before my 37-week pregnant wife bursts. Oh my god! I know Colin talked on a previous show about taking a break from gaming a few years back, but I was wondering what the longest period of non-gaming you both had taken and why you took that time off. Also, what game would you suggest I break the drought with once I get this thing written so that, as I haven't bought a game this year? 
and he was asking like Spider-Man, God of War, etc. Thanks for everything you do. I've enjoyed keeping up with the conversation, even if I had to put down the DualShock for the past few months. Do you know off the top of your head what's the longest period you've went without playing a game? No. I think... I I don't think I've ever really taken note of it. I just kind of don't play, and I forget that I don't play, you know? Because I'm not thinking about it. I'm obviously not thinking about video games if I'm not playing them. Right. You know, so it just doesn't cross my mind at all. I don't know that I've gone more than a couple of months without ever playing a game since I was very little, but in terms of, like, playing in a hardcore, dedicated way, as I said before, I went a year in college without really playing much, and I've gone a few months here and there. I've never really taken that long of a break. Even, Even when I'm taking, like, a break from, like... Like you said, like hardcore sessions where I'm like trying to get through a game. That I don't really take that many breaks. Me neither. Yeah. Blake Lotta wrote in. We only have three more questions. Hey, Colin and Chris, love the podcast so far. It's the only one I. It's the only one I pot. What does it say? It's the only one I podcast. I think it's the only podcast is what you meant. Yeah. I make sure to keep up with each week. You're blowing it, Blake. My question is about the current state of the PlayStation marketplace. You guys have said multiple times that you believe that Sony needs to make a sort of quality control division. To which I agree. What do you think would be the final straw of sorts to make Sony ever consider making such a thing? The more They more than likely are just making making money and greenlighting everything they can afford, but what level of backlash would be enough for Sony to make sure that games they allow aren't total crap? Thanks for all the hours of entertainment until Chris, it was awesome meeting him at PAX. Blake, you blew it twice because if you met him at PAX, you clearly didn't tell him that I was handsome. Like yeah. I instructed you guys to, so way to go. <laughs> what do you think will be the final straw? Like What could happen on Sony's marketplace on PSN, PlayStation Store, that would actually cause them to care. Because I dispute something Blake says here, Chris, which I think is important. I truly do not believe that Sony makes money on most of these games. I actually think they're losing money yeah. on a lot of these games because of the back-end support that has to be given to QA these games to get their trophies in. They have to liaison with a lot of people back and forth. I don't think they're making money on a lot of these games. I don't. So what do you think has to happen? Is that to be something catastrophic? It has to be like a PR nightmare. Like a game like forces you to sign up for something. and then or It has to be like a virus gets through. Or like downright shovelware or like malware. Because it probably could. It probably could honestly get through. It would take something like that, I think. Something similar to like a PS, like a, like a hack. You know, just like this joke of a game that's that opens people's accounts to like... I feel like it would have to be like a really big thing. Because I don't think they care, really. No, I don't think they, they care If they cared, they would have done something, I feel like. Sure. I know. I think it's interesting to note that... It would take a game, from my perspective, that let's say it's like this shitty $5, $2 PSN game and then randomly you just do something really obvious in the game and it's there's like literally a, an emulated version of Mario Brothers in it. Yeah, yeah. Like something like that where it's like, I almost want a developer to do it just to prove it, that like they can do it, that like you can get Mario on the PSN store just by hiding it a little bit. I bet you you can. Yeah. And I think that that says everything because there's like the Apple, the App Store deals with that every day and mm-hmm. there's a million clones of everything, clones of clones of clones. So I think it would require something like that. But I do dispute this idea that they are making money on these games. I just can't believe that if a, a game sells 400 copies at $10 a piece, Sony's cut is $3. So they made $1,200 on that game. And that can't possibly be profitable for them compared to what they had to put into it. They have these employees, you know, again, talking to these developers, grabbing their games, going back and forth with them. There's no way that they're making money on these games. Yeah. That's what frustrates me the most is if someone just did an audit of this situation, they'd realize like we're not making money on literally 80% of this, so why is 80% of it even on the store? Totally valid question. Yeah, I don't think they're making money on it either. It's cool meeting you though, Blake. Yeah, Blake, way to go. David S. Graham wrote in, said, hello, Chris and the J.D. Salinger of podcasting. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was quite surprised on the previous episode when Colin mentioned having genuine interest in playing Fallout 76. Being a multiplayer-only game, I find it to be a little out of character. 
I also think Chris could give a very interesting perspective on the matter, being an individual with a greater appreciation of multiplayer games. It seems like no one really knows what to make of this game, and I would like to know what exactly it is that, that has or has not attracted you to it. Is it a fresh new take on a stale franchise or a further bastardization of a beloved property? Thanks for all that you do. Well, David, I have to contest it. Fallout 76 is not a multiplayer-only game. I mean, they made that very clear. That's why I'm interested in it. You don't have to play it with anyone else. They, they did make that clear. Unless I'm mistaken, they did say that. Yeah, they did say that. You can, And they have private servers... Uh, or presumably they're going to be putting out private servers as well, where you could you know play with only people that you know. And I don't think it's a bastardization. I think it's a bit, it's a bit tough. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think it's an interesting risk. Honestly, I, I know that making a multiplayer kind of shared world thing is kind of in right now, but at the same time, it's like they're doing it with a franchise that I think even they know it, it would have been a risk to do that with. It could be jumping on a bandwagon, but I also think it's just interesting because Fallout is a universe that I kind of have always wanted to just kind of explore with friends of mine. It has always been just like, it's a very interesting world and it's kind of a shame that you're just kind of insulated by yourself and you have to, hey, have you gotten to this part yet? And it's like, All right, well, okay, I guess I won't spoil it. And it's like, this is a fun universe. If they could get the gameplay right, you know, if they can make it so vats make sense, which I'm very curious about how they're going to do that. I think it could be a really fun game. I don't think it's going to be a great game. I don't think it's going to be game of the year. I don't think it's going to be this grand renaissance in multiplayer shared world IPs or anything. But I think it has great potential to be a lot of dumb fun. You can nuke people. That's awesome. That's great. It is. And it changes the map. That's that's neat. That's a cool idea. Yeah, it sounds cool. I'm interested in it. But I, I have to be clear that I'm not interested in it for its multiplayer functionality. I just It's new, more Fallout, and I'm always going to be open-minded to that. I'm always going to have a open mind with more Fallout. And I don't think that they're stupid enough to make a multiplayer-only game either. Because yeah. I don't think that their audience wants that. If they walked out of stage at E3 and said, like, this is a multiplayer-only game, people would have been totally distraught. And so you will note that at Bethesda's press conference at E3, they did the exact opposite. And right out front was like, this game can be played by yourself. And yeah. is basically our single-player game just in, with multiplayer functionality. Yeah, it's definitely going to be multiplayer-focused. I think that is obviously the focus of it. So people who are playing it single player are going to be a little bit, they're probably going to have less to do, which is kind of to be expected when the game is kind of built on the backs of interactions with other players. But I don't know. I think it's going to be fun. Final I'm oh, I'm sorry. Did you have more? Nah, I'm just excited about it. Son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I like cutting you off. David Porges has the final question for the week. Says, hey guys, I'm loving this show, so thank you for providing us with such great content quick so quickly. What does that mean, David? Con such great content quickly. Hmm. There's nothing quick about it. A lot of work goes into this, David. A lot of work. <laughs> Chris has got to come here. He's got to put on his teddy bear hat. Yeah. It's a, a big, it's a big, it's a big ordeal. It is a big ordeal. It's fun. My question is, how do you feel about collectibles that you have to go out of your way to get in linear story-driven games? For example, a story mission objective will tell you to urgently to tell to get somewhere, but still find its quarters with collectibles and side paths and rooms. Personally, I find it a bit immersion breaking when the story tells you you should get to a waypoint ASAP, and yet has random statues and recordings and data points all around you as it encourages you to find. Looking forward to hearing your answers, David from Israel. That's a great question, and I, I often find that as well. First of all, I love collectibles, collectathons. Mm -hmm. I love them because. I just feel like there's more to do. It rounds out trophies. It gives you like more story and more plot and more lore in the game, which is cool. But it is funny when it's like, this is happening over here. And you can literally take like five hours to get there because you're running around or going backwards to like look for shit. But you strike me when you told me that you beat Shadow of the Tomb Raider in like seven or eight hours, right? Mm -hmm. That's unthinkable to me. Like that's, really? un that's impossible. 
Like no? not, I'm not saying you didn't do it. I'm saying for my <laughs> my play style, impossible. Like it would never happen. You that have way. to like you have to get everything. Yeah, it, it, I'm I obsess over the maps and like where everything is and go back and like make notes about like why I don't have this certain item to get this thing and then immediately go back and get it. <laughs> but I, you strike me as a person that doesn't like playing like that. It depends. Like if a game gives me good reason, like I really liked actually. I, I, because I'm not big on collectathons, like even back in like the Banjo Kazooie days. Like I like Banjo Kazooie, but like even back then, I was like, "This is tedious to like just collect all these stupid notes." So I've never been too big on collectathons unless there's some interesting thing about them. Like I, I think Spider-Man does a really good job. Like finding the backpacks is fun to me because it's not just like finding like 50 tokens that are spread around the map and they're like in tedious locations to get to. No, you can find them and they give you kind of interesting insight to the characters and, and just kind of interesting nods to previous, uh, not only movies, but like shows and, and comics that that character has been a part of. If you make collectibles worth getting in that regard, where they give you actually like they, they feed into the rest of the game, where they amplify the story or they, they provide a unique gameplay challenge, I think that's interesting. But with a game like Tomb Raider, where it's just kind of Laura Croft, and I, I know everything about Laura Croft that I need to know. I'm not really all that interested in finding some mayan statue even uncharted i was like oh it's neat a little amulet but it wasn't like something that was all that engaging because it didn't really affect how i looked at the character or really the world at all sure you know that makes sense that makes sense yeah i just like games that balance it better i think spider-man had a good balance we'll talk about that in our episode Mm -hmm. where it didn't overstay its welcome it didn't have too much as opposed to my experience with witcher Witcher 3 which because of my ocd nature and like my my inability to just play the game but yeah. to have to do everything, that game literally became impossible for me to play. Like, I had to walk away from it after 40 or 50 hours because I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Witcher was, not, was, was one for me, too, where it's like I really wanted to do all the side stuff because it was engaging. But I had the same thing. I just got burnt down and I was, like, overwhelmed with, with all this crazy stuff to do. You'd, like, go after one question mark and then five more would pop up. And it's like, yeah, exactly. how is this possible? Like, I, I respect that CD Projekt puts so much work and so much time into the game. I'll definitely, like, go, I'll definitely go to it at How some point. is it possible that there's so much content in this game? It's too much. It's crazy. So the game that strikes the perfect balance, I think, is good there. I think Uncharted, like, with their little treasure collectibles is nice. Those are basically just there for tr- trophies, basically. Yeah. And The Last of Us, I think, had really nice collectibles, too, with, you know, some of them, like, told their own story, their own side story, if you found them all, which is pretty neat as well. Yeah, like the notes. And, yeah, and some yeah. people would assume that the DLC, which ended up being left behind, was going to be about two of the characters that you hear about and in in only in the collectibles, which would have been neat, but it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, I think it really just comes down to the the quality at which it's done. I think Spider Man does a does a great job, especially when I compare it to because I've I've played a lot of Spider Man games with a lot of collectibles, and I didn't give a damn about uh, the prior games because there were all these like, hey, collect two hundred tokens that are spread across Manhattan. They're not on the map also, and they're hidden in really obscure places. So when you find all of them but the last one, yeah, good luck. Good luck finding a token in a subway tunnel. That's like in a crevice that you have to crawl under. It's like, ugh, this is tedious. Yeah, and it awful. doesn't do anything. It's just like, it just takes away at like a, a percentage. It's like, ah, I don't know. There's a lot of games that do that, though. That shit speaks to me for some reason. It's sad. <laughs> but I'm part of the problem, I guess. Ah, well. Well, Chris, that's all we have for this episode of Sacred Symbols. Well, look at that. I hope you all enjoyed it out there. Thank you so much for your love, your kindness, and support. Remember, this is a PlayStation-centric podcast we do every week. You can get every episode on Tuesday, three days early and ad-free by supporting the show at patreon.com slash Stand. You'll have to wait till Friday for the free feeds if you don't want to support us, which is perfectly fine. So you get it a little later, but you still get the episode with a little bit of advertisement in it. Right now, by the way, I'm just advertising my own stuff, but we are working with some some people to get 
other ads in there. So I'm just warning you guys that that will probably, the status quo will probably change in the coming weeks as well. So it might mm -hmm. be time for you to get on Patreon if you want to support us. Remember, you can submit questions on Patreon as well, exclusive episodes on Patreon, et cetera, and so on. If you listen on the free feeds, please do consider leaving us nice reviews and nice scores as it helps us find a new audience on iTunes and elsewhere. And we are continuing to grow, so we appreciate that very much. And by the way, if you're in PlayStation communities on Reddit or on PlayStation.com or on PSN or whatever, alert everyone that Sacred Symbols exists. Yeah. Let them know that they have a PlayStation show just for them. And we do have a Sacred Symbols community on PlayStation that you can join as well on PS4. It's not run by me. It's run by someone else. But it seems like a nice group of people over there. Yeah. You want to check it out. Chris, mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time. Of course. Appreciate you. Everyone out there, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. And actually, we'll see you a little bit earlier than that for the Spider-Man episode, which we're about to record right after this. So thank you again. Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Azan Isa Al-Raisi, Ahmad Elways, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Jeremy Brokos, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Matthew Canoy, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, David Cox, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanikos, Travis Depew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Nicholas J. Gorblish, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Dominic Rostini, Miranda Grubba, Random Guy Radio, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Josh Yeager, Clarence Johnson, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, John Clote, Kevin Kamaki, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Jackson Lasuqua, Daniel Laws, Joe Law. Austin, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lou and Ray Loper, Brendan Lyle, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Michael Martello, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mock Media, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Ryman. Schneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Riley Smith, Gerard Stuave, Stephen Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael Edward Went, Griffin West, Mike Wayne, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Richter86, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, and Donk2015.